my shit in reverse Go back and take another spot Cause I'm rolling in my six four. <laughs> Shug, how are you? Shug yeah. the Mooney, episode 64. Will you still love me when I'm 64? Yeah. Beatles. We're back. <laughs> we're back. It's uh we're recording Friday. What is it? Friday the 13th. Are you a uh superstitious fella? No, not for Friday the 13th. Are you a fat? Well, uh someone said uh, it's 11 11 make a wish. And I go, uh, ah, superstitious. And I go, ooh, Friday the 13th. I want to watch that movie because I like the, I like the movies. Of the time, but, I don't even know what the, the date, what today's date is. So if strange shit happens, it's just Friday to me. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it is a Friday, uh, end of a long week, beat, it's hot, uh, sultry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a dog days of summer. And uh, how you feeling? Yeah, it's hot as hell, man. This is like the fourth heat wave, like at, at least this summer, which is yeah. crazy. I know it's like it's usually like one or two weeks where it's like really, really hot, but it's been like four or five of these like stretches of it just being like ninety. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been feeling it. Too bad out there, uh, but it's dog days of summer. It's also the boys of summer are out. Uh, we had a little treat last night with the Field of Dreams game. Yeah, if you want, yeah, if you want to call it that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we we know what well, we know what happened. Uh, but that was just something different. I mean, weren't they supposed to do that a while ago, or it was always planned for twenty twenty one? Um, did they move it last year? I think they 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 canceled it last year, if I'm not mistaken, and then they moved it to this year. Um. They probably did. They probably did because I remember them saying like it. Um, somebody having the date confused because it, it was what the twelfth, and originally it was um scheduled for like the thirteenth, the fourteenth. So I assume it, they changed it. But I went out and got the the hot. I needed a new Yankees hot, but it's cool because it's like old school it got like the old like the, yeah, ins- yeah. the inside is is white the brim underneath the brim it's it's green so it's kind of like an old school hat yeah i love that uh i love the green all the hats i get are uh i try to make it look like that get that that old look yeah it's uh, good even though uh our yankees lost it's still a cute little memento to have and memory yeah. of I feel like the bright side of every loss is just like it lowers the odds of Aaron Boone coming back. Um, but that's not like set in stone because like I feel like even if they barely made the playoffs and they lost in like the wild card game or they lost in the division series, it'll be, oh, well, you know, at the beginning of the season, you see where we were. So he like turned it around and it's like, nah, like because I've seen 
managers who've like barely made the playoffs that have won World Series or at least gotten their team to the World Series, and they hadn't gotten like you know the benefit of like oh they made the playoffs even though they 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 um you know overcame these circumstances. So I don't think Aaron Boone has earned that. But you know this I, I was I tweeted last night I was like I think like Hal Steinbrenner has like a sick fetish. <laughs> with like pissing off Yankee fans after he gets their money, he's like a dominatrix. <laughs> you know, like like you know when they have like those dominatrix that like they they wear like stilettos and like you pay them to like stomp on your like face and shit. Like I've that's part of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah never partaken. Uh, hey, maybe it's some repressive repressed things he has. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it was cool because it's it's based on a movie, which is interesting. You know, Kevin Costner was there. Yeah. Uh, I I sat down for that part. I was like, oh, that's cool to see Kevin oh. Costner. I mean, we're be talking a lot about how uh, a lot of Hollywood actors today, so that was just cool to see. Yeah. Um, I felt like the whole presentation of it should have just ended after like the opening ceremonies, because for one, you have Joe Buck and John Smoltz, which is you know, fucking like air rape. The like, chore. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a it's it's a chore and a bore to listen to, and then they had like Kevin Costner in the um in a booth and of course they're in like iowa so it ain't like he's like in a rush to get back to his hotel so it's like, <laughs> might as well have him in there for like 15 like for, for like five innings yeah it's, like, it's the first time they had a major league baseball game in iowa you know yeah, it's like kind and of it's, like uh and it's like every like in between pitches here's some interesting facts about iowa here's some yeah. interesting facts about corn here's some interesting facts about field of dreams and it's like for one, like, Field of Dreams is, like, a 30-year-old, 30-plus-year-old movie um, that, you know, the younger generation of fans probably don't give a shit about anyways. Um, the younger generation of fans probably don't even know who the hell Kevin Costner is. Um, and it just kept on peppering it in. I was like, you, you have, like, this fun, like, baseball game and this, like, you know, uh, out-of-the-ordinary setting um you don't really need to try to keep people interested and you know like losing aside like it was like a really really fun game to see um people hitting balls into cornfields like it's the kind of thing you 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 going into the game you wanted to see and then actually seeing it was pretty cool um you would hear a lull and joe buck be like According to the farmer's almanac, we're gonna have a mild fall. Yeah. The O2. And, and the ninth <laughs> the ninth inning, it was funny because I was like, I think my stepdad, he was he was doing something, so he didn't get to see the ninth inning. So top of the night, we're down um four to seven. Um judge hits a two run home run with two outs, and it's six seven. So I'm like, oh, all right, cool. We, you know, it's it, it sucks we're going to lose by one run. So then Joey Gallo walks. He's the next batter up. He walks. And Stanton comes up. And I'm like, ooh, like, runner on. You know, imagine if Stanton could get a hold of one the same way Judge did. And lo and behold, first pitch, knocks it into left field. We're up 8-7. So I go to tell my stepdad what happened. And he's like, oh, I got to see this. So he rewinds it back. And I'm still in awe of the whole inning. And... I'm watching it and, you know, Chapman's out. So you don't have your regular closer. So it's likely going to be Britain. 
so we're rewatching it, and I was like, well, you know, he was like, who do you think? Is, who who's who's who are we gonna bring in to close? So I was like, it's likely gonna be Britain, and it's a good thing because Britain keeps the ball on the ground. And then lo and behold, we get through the inning, and I'm and we we fast forward to the live thing, and it's um Tim Anderson like celebrating and fireworks going off, and I'm like, oh, it looks like we lost. So I like reverse jinxed and jinxed, a jinxed and reverse jinxed and jinxed again until the point we lost. But they're off to Chicago. They have a uh, you know a road trip there. They they're gonna finish out the series in Chicago up at um Comiskey Park or whatever the hell they're calling it. Uh, so they got two chances to win no series. But speaking about road tri- uh, trips to Chicago, Mike, what's up? All right. Well, it's been long in the works. It wasn't 100%, but it is booked. Shugmi the Mooney is going on the road. This is, this is a Labor of Love podcast, and on Labor Day weekend, we will be uh, doing a little bit of uh, Feel the Dreams of Our Own. We're going to be going to, uh, going to Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. So that's exciting, and we're going to talk more about that. Uh, it's going to be fun. Uh, there's a lot of guys who they uh, – DM me recently and they're like, oh, you know, I've been watching your show the last few months. Uh, I'm glad. Uh, I know a lot of people did their own podcast during the COVID and then they kind of just like, you know, got, they stopped. I'm glad you're doing it. So we're going to hook up with them too and we're going to meet them and hang out. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the last thing I'll say is like, I, I can't wait for them to have the the lot from the Sandlot baseball game. I'll go to that one. No, That's going to be, that, that would be, I'll just I know be you like know, some I, random dude's backyard. <laughs> it's a guy with a noisy uh, Rottweiler. Yeah. Um, somebody was saying, like, um, and it's funny because I was thinking about it this morning because everybody, you know, everybody's like, baseball is boring. Baseball sucks. I hate baseball. Da, 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 da. But then they do this game last night. Like, oh, they have, they went to the setting of this movie to film this baseball, to, to have a baseball game. You know, it's cool. So then all of a sudden, all the people are like, I hate baseball. It's like, oh, what if they did something like that for the NBA? What do they do? Do they go to Rucker Park or do they do the um, white man jack- can't jump, go to Venice Beach? Mm. Oh, that actually is it's cool. It's interesting. Uh, like, nobody's interested in baseball until, like, baseball, you know, does something that's, that's, that's world, you know, recognized across the world. Like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. So transcending cool. pop culture, yeah. Uh I had to charge my phone up and, and uh, during the week and there was like a soccer match on and I'm sorry, baseball. Is so I can, I can't watch that. You know, baseball is way more exciting because we grew up on it, but I can see how like it's, you gotta be, you gotta grow up on it. Uh, so yeah. Uh, that was just a little cute little. But speaking of, speaking of NBA and doing mm. stuff for the fans, um, I don't know mm. if you, you got to watch it, but you know, we discussed it a while back, I think on this like anniversary, the Malice in the Palace. Now you yeah. got that. Mm-hmm. You get you get the player side, and I didn't, yeah. I never really realized that they never actually got the chance to like the def- you know like explain what happened. Mm-hmm. So you know, just real quickly, it's just, it, it, it it's like an hour long documentary. It's on um, Netflix, and I didn't I never knew like the intricacies of it, like you know how like or never realized the intricacies of it. Like for one, David Stern suspended all of those guys and those guys actually went to federal court to to um fight the suspension and the federal judge was like 
yeah, they had every right. They their lives were threatened. Like they weren't going into the fans into the stands just because, like they felt like beating up fans that day. Like the fans really instigated it, and the Palace of Auburn Hills didn't have and the the, the police presence and the security didn't contain the fans, and they were left to defend themselves. And they, yeah, that part of the story was never put out there. And then of course, like the rhetoric. Of like you know oh this is thug behavior you know which is just like the the um TV friendly way of being able to say the n word because I've never heard the word thug be used for anybody but black people I mean sometimes Latin people but never really anybody else outside of minorities so that's like in wrestling when a, a fan which happened a couple weeks ago comes into the ring yeah uh, you can't like really get sued. I mean, I know that people have been sued and they had to settle out of court because they didn't want to go into court to deal with it. Yeah. But once you once you cross that barrier, you know, once that happens, yeah, uh, yeah I got to check that out too because uh, um, we, we we talked about that fondly even way before the show. Yeah, like uh, uh, I, I, it kind of snuck up on me. I knew it was coming out, but I didn't realize yeah. like it had came out um, and, you know, I had a lot of other stuff going on that I had to catch up on, like Suicide Squad and... Mm all this other stuff that came out over the weekend yeah a lot of things happening is you know usually this would have been a time for like summer blockbusters and we would have been there getting eating our popcorn mm-hmm. and everything but now it's different so now you get to watch it whenever you want to watch it you can watch it three in the morning or whatever so it's not really it feels different but a lot of things are coming out um this is long and this is our fifth part of once upon a time in hollywood we're gonna cap that off today uh i'm excited um and it's it's interesting because this week Tarantino was in the news uh, for something he said on a podcast. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about we're going to discuss that. Yeah. Uh, it had to do with him and his uh, mother uh, yeah. and about supporting him when he was a kid and uh, like this uh, hobby he had, which eventually turned into a hundred twenty million dollar estate. Uh, but interesting enough, we also watched a documentary this week, uh, Val Kilmer. And he, uh, I had no idea that he's very similar. He was doing stuff at five years old, uh, very artistic and everything. And it uh, seems that it was the opposite where he was, he was supported and he ended up uh, going a, a similar route as Tarantino. So we're going to talk about that because uh, we've always talked about, uh, you know, with Batman earlier on and a lot of movies that uh, La Camera was in. And another thing that's happening in wrestling um that seems to be like a week by week thing is uh releases mm-hmm. so we're gonna get into that because uh, there's big names there's also small names but the bigger picture is uh i feel that it's like a liquidation type deal like they're 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 setting up their books so someone from an outsider can come in and look at wwe and be like all right they're uh they're worth maybe uh selling or uh, purchasing yeah Cause a lot, like even in sports too, like you kind of see a team kind of um not commit to like long long term contracts or try to get rid of their long term contracts or bad contracts in order for like the new ownership to come in and you know they they you know they're not beholden to paying some guy like fifty million dollars just to be on a last place team because nobody's selling like a first place team. Yeah, like um, 
that, but it actually reminds me of the last dance where they didn't want to uh, do these max contracts with these players. So they were uh, moving contracts around and uh, they weren't in the last place. They were, you know, number, they were number one and it ended up being the same thing where they had to move these pieces away. And uh, in the long run, is it, is it bad for business? Uh, we'll see for WWE, but we're going to get into that. Um, that's going to be Shirky the Mooney 64. Yeah. So once upon a time in Hollywood, um, finally finished the book. It was a fun read. We're getting ready to, um, hopefully at some point the hardcover book will come, which it's supposed to have like a few more things in it. Um, you know, we're not going to read it over, but you know, we, we collect this, so we're going to have it. But not only did we finish the book, we were able to rewatch the movie and actually um, now we could talk about the movie as it relates to the book and the book as it relates to the movie because as we've been detailing the past couple of weeks, there's a lot of things that were in the movie that didn't have context that were described in the book. And I just realized because I knew some scenes in the book I had seen already in a movie, but then when I watched the movie, I'm like, did I misremember this? And then realized like they're in the um deleted scenes. Mm. Yeah, right, right. They're deleted yeah. scenes and they're uh they're also like mixed together. Uh like a setting will be uh replaced for something that could have three things happening at once, not just uh like a back and forth. Um like just real quick, like the first chapter we read was about uh uh, Rick Dalton meeting the agent, the foreign agent. Mm-hmm. And um, and then the other chapter was uh, Cliff in the waiting room. This, you have Cliff and Rick and you have the character, the, the agent character all in like the same area. Cause like that's how films uh, make it cheaper and just, uh, you know, practical uh, costs. They, they mix things together while, while having like another day shoot. So that was really interesting to, when I rewatched it. Um, yeah, so... Uh, I, I remember enjoying the movie when I first saw it. Uh, it was two years ago. Yeah. I saw it like tw- I saw it twice. Um, one was like at the Alamo Experience, and one was just in an old school theater that I had been going to since the '90s. I think I saw Kill Bill there, and I saw um, Grindhouse and all those. So you know, it was cool to see it in both both experiences. Because you know how Alamo is, where it's like it's like a fun thing. They gave away like goodies, mm-hmm. um, but just as an experience. Uh, I remember like really being into it. Uh, I remember that summer being like a lot of work and I was just like, kind of like be, and that really uh, uh, was a treat because I kind of stopped watching Tarantino movies for like a good decade. Yeah. Um, I wasn't that into Glorious Bastards and uh, Django on Un- chain and um, uh, what do you call that? Hateful Eight. Hateful Eight. I, I only just saw that again, like a year ago. And it was that with different version, the Netflix version. And I go, wow, this is interesting. This is interesting, you know, but uh, I don't know how many times I'm going to go back to it. But I think Tarantino even called this like a hangout movie. Jackie Brown is a hangout movie. That's why that was always like my favorite. Whole fiction, you can jump into it at any time. Yeah. This, I can see myself jumping back into this in, in like a random scene and like not switching back and just finishing it off. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I, like, I know it, it caught hell, like, um, the response to it, the fan response to it when it first came out was kind of um, mixed, but I enjoyed it when I first saw it and I still enjoy it now, probably even more so because 
of the book because now it's it's a, I know a lot more about the characters than I did before um than I did when I saw it before and you know right after so watching it now with the context I'm watching it and it's like now certain scenes have a little bit more um significance and some of that I'm gonna get into. So let's talk about the last half of the book. Right. Or basically we... like the last quarter of the book that we finished. Yeah. Uh we're gonna do 20 to 25. 400 pages. It was very like perfectly ordered. And that was on purpose. You know, so it wasn't just like, oh, was, you knew it was about to be at the end because it was the 400 number. It was very uh kind of like a film where it's like 90 minutes, you know. Yeah. I feel like maybe he did it on purpose, like you know, intentionally. But um, so it's sexy evil Hamlet. That's mm-hmm. a um, every conversation that uh, Rick has with the director Wanamaker. It's um, it's the director kind of hyping it up as like think Shakespeare, think Shakespeare, right. and he's like this Shakespeare shit again, like that. And um, it's like uh, the director trying to make it bigger than it is because like Shakespeare is always like it has it had always been like. The, like the cream the creme de la creme of like acting mm-hmm. like uh you know eventually we're going to talk about uh val kilmer he one of his things he said was maybe by 28 or 29 i can i'll be good enough to do hamlet or something yeah. like that. so now i know I, I get that it's like a it's like the bar um yeah yeah, yeah so like rewatching the sexy evil hamlet so right after he wraps his big scene um on lancer you hear the director said, there it is, mm-hmm. uh, focus, focus, sexy, evil Hamlet. And you didn't know what the fuck he was talking about when you saw the movie. Mm-hmm. But now when you read the book, it's like, oh, all right, they had this, um, you know, they call it, what, what do they call it? Like the, the director giving notes. So they got yeah. this this conversation where he's giving them notes. Like, yeah, I could see you doing Shakespeare. And one of the deleted scenes is, um, him and Sam Wanamaker just sitting um and talking and you can see why the scene got cut because it would have it would have messed up like the the um the pacing of the movie but it was a funny little conversation with um Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton and um the gentleman I was playing Sam Wanamaker but now it it provided context yeah uh it's layered more um Going back to the same thing I said about having like an actor be uh, like good enough or skilled enough to do like a Hamlet or like that character in the in the novel of the chapter, um, they kind of mention how um, Rick is like a amateur drunk, mm-hmm. right? And then like then they go into again. This is what why the, it was, it's a great compliment to the movie. Um, they go into uh, film history, which we love, you know. And it's saying uh, George Lee Marvin, uh, George C. Scott. These are names that I see on TCM all the time. I know who these people are. Uh, and then Aldo Ray. Um, they were like known as like, all right, we'll let them do their thing because that's how we're going to get this movie done. But they're drunks, whatever. They're professional drunks. And he's like, you know, Rick isn't there yet. He's an amateur drunk. He's working on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that was, that, that was one thing that uh, stuck out to me. And uh, you got to remember also, uh, also in this chapter, um, 
Cliff as Caleb. Uh, and Rick. Mar- yeah, Rick as uh, Caleb. Uh, and Marabella, Tr- Trudy. Um, she kind of goes into like an acting class mode. And yeah. I didn't know this until I read, uh, while reading the book, I, I listened to Tarantino on all these podcasts. And it's way personal because, um, like we said, like uh, he dropped out of school and his only formal training was acting class. So these are things that in his mind he remembered from back then. Maybe he was hanging out with someone back in the 80s. And this is more personal than him just uh, adapting like Rum Punch and just turning that into Jackie Brown. This is reminding, it, it, this is instilling in the idea that I had early on that this is kind of like an autobiography in a way of Tarantino, which is really cool, you know? Yeah. It, that's why I think it translates in the film because uh, he goes around these stores and shops that were there when he was growing up in 69. Yeah. You know, it, it's his age. It's like five and a half years old. And then at the, the 20 also has um, the, you know, James Stacy character. Yeah. Uh, and she's kind of, do you remember, was she like pitting them against each other or like kind of like, she was kind of like bringing up Stacy, uh, like, uh, oh yeah, the swing, this is my notes. So like, remember they had that like swinging dick shootout where like, who's going to go up first? Yeah. Uh, earlier on, like, like it was like a duel, and like he finally go went up there. He said, "Well, he's the, he's the he's the guy. He he needs to come up to me." Uh, this is Trudy's way of because she's an eight year old girl. Uh, this is her way of kind of a pissing contest with with uh, with Rick. Like she's getting in his mind and like <laughs> kind of like messing with him. And I that's what I got from it. Like it was like um, that cerebral, very cerebral for like an eight year old. And he's like, you know, this little fucking eight year old kid. Yeah. Uh, and it's because she didn't want to probably get upstage, so. Um, that's that was her tool that was her you know sometimes like actresses like beautiful women and like like older women they'll use that to kind of steal a scene and mm-hmm. this was her way of kind of getting in his head that was 20 um uh so the, another very important scene in the film uh it correlates with chapter 21 of the book mm-hmm. that's lady of the house so this is when um cliff arrives at uh spawn ranch this is a yeah. huge scene that I forgot that it was like almost a climax of the movie at one point. It was like, it was like kind of like the beginning of the third act, right? Yeah. And and what you'd find with the differences between the book and the film is that a lot of the um, intense, um, excite, exciting um, action parts of the movie draw not to use action because when you think action with action movies like some kind of big old fight or some kind of explosion or something but when i mean like action i mean like all right you're on you yeah 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 your fingers are into the um armrest and you're leaning forward like oh i want to see what's going to happen now like all of those scenes in the movie that you actually oh they in the book it's actually like subdued um or at least kind of glossed over or a just a, a sentence like right. the flame the flamethrower in the book is just like ah that was that was horseshit don't worry about that that remember right. then they went into like what happened in the future like oh that made him like be on johnny carson like 10 years later and he was like tell me about this whole hippie thing you know like gotta talk about him again like a hero uh yeah. and and he um yeah so in in that scene um in the film it's a tense situation because it's the first time you encounter um 
I want to say the first time you see the Manson family, but it's the first time you kind of see the Manson family. Yeah, well, the layer, but also it's the first time you see them in action. Mm. You know, like like a military. Like, yeah, where she's like, you go here, I go there. You know that. Yeah, and it's like you kind of use like Quentin Tarantino uses the audience's like knowledge, um, to kind of boost up the scene because you know. Um, present day, the aftermath of what these people were capable of and what Charles Manson was training them to do, and um, how he psychologically prepared them to basically be um, murderers. So you didn't know how the scene was gonna go, but in this scene, it's it's really tense. Um, he arrives, and a lot of the stuff that was described was played up like squeaky who's the aptly named lady of the house in in the the title of the chapter um you know i hear a car it's a strange car um whatever um sydney sweeney's character was i, I didn't re- even realize like sydney sweeney was a lot more in the movie than i realized before um when i first watched it because this was before like euphoria and all of that so i didn't recognize it it was her and um victoria pedretti was also one of the the people if you know her from you the um netflix series um she was one of the characters and she's on another series on haunting of the hill house or something like that um so all of these people is like you didn't really know them as stuff um text the guy who's played played text um you know the movie where Tom Hanks went to Australia and he got COVID last year. It was a Elvis movie. He's the person that's playing Elvis. So a lot of these people I played like these bit parts, they're actually going to be, they're actually known, went on to be known for other stuff. And, you know, they're going to be popping up in other things fairly um, soon. Uh, but not to go too far off. So Dakota Fanning played Squeaky. And in the movie, you watch the scene play out as you know, the audience, but in the book, you see it from Sweetie's perspective. If you want to elaborate on that, Mike. Yeah, so like in the book, um, I forgot about this until I re saw it. It's like more from their point of view and Cliff like had doesn't isn't really a, a factor in it as much. Like they go, oh the Hawaiian guy is just um uh they're just like describing what he's doing. You don't have that very intense back and forth that you have in the movie like you know it's brad pitt's moment to shine in this scene where he's like very intense uh it's a western set and um i think he's this is like probably uh the highlight some of the highlights of the of the film in my opinion of brad pitt where he's like uh is he just living there you know like it's funny but it's also like tense and it's like um like mr eight years ago you know mm-hmm. uh but I think like where it's, it's like, why did you read the book? Well, it's completely different from like watching a movie. Like it's both has, you put them together, they complement them yeah. and you get the whole picture, you know, and you get like more intensity from inside the house, from the book, more, more from George. Uh, you actually, I didn't really care about their relationship, but I actually care about her and him, you know, like, cause it's so like a book is so personal that I was like, wow, like I'm now I'm thinking about like all her, the ones, her and George or her and Cliff? George. Okay. Her and George. Like yeah. like like they you can 
because it's a book like it's it's very personal and i can imagine i'm like imagining them every night you know like watching movies and stuff like that watch tv it's like uh you can get why uh he doesn't want to be saved or whatever like yeah. he, he knows what he's doing i that's a that's kind of an allusion to um i think you ever seen the, you know the searchers where it's like they're trying to save this person like oh you're mm-hmm. with the you're with these natives or whatever like you know you're with these savages they're gonna save you and she doesn't want to be saved yeah, yeah. that's what that remind me of because i think they filmed it around there so and it was it, the way like you say where it's like you you understand now their relationship and you understand why he doesn't want to be saved now when he turns to cliff like after like first being kind of really like you know oh what the fuck do you want you know and he turns to him it's like I don't know who you are, but you touched my heart today because it's probably very rare that anybody outside of Squeaky, he gets to interact with or anybody shows interest in him outside of the, the Manson family. So for somebody to come in there and like, um, you know, want to see about him, like, I think he genuine, genuinely was touched by it. Also, like his use in the world was his like ranch and stuff and people stopped using it. Yeah. So. They, these people were using it and it's like well it gives me like a something that it gives me like a meaning in like everyday stuff which you know as dark or as like as it can sound it's real people's realities are like you know yeah he's like an octogenarian he's an yeah, octogenarian you, with like poor eyesight so of course like he's like you know my days are probably numbered so i'm trying to like enjoy them as much as i can and if you're like an 80 year old girl or 80 year old like mind you he doesn't even know what squeaky looks like he just knows like <laughs> her voice and what she does for him like yeah you got a yeah. you got a warm bed and a hot meal and a hot whatever <laughs> yeah whatever um yeah so chapter 22 um i think i just said that cliff and brad pitt's performance in the in the scene at Spawn Ranch is like up there. Yeah. Uh, if this was in the movie, this probably would have been a highlight of Brad Pitt because I could see this because this is not in the movie. Right. There's, okay, so chapter twenty-two is uh, you they he transports us to uh, a set or a, a location for a uh, spaghetti uh, spaghetti western, but it's in Spain. Yeah. Um, it's an aging star. Basically, it's a version of Rick. Dolan, it's Aldo Ray. Um, it's kind of like uh, Rick Dolan ten years in the future, maybe if he mm-hmm. keeps going down the way he's going. Uh, so we're in the hotel, and we get again we get a little history backstory uh, from the narrator, and it's basically saying um, that. Okay, so we like sports. So let's talk, uh, do, do you know Josh Hamilton where he uh, had his issues. Uh, substance abuse and everything yeah uh he had like handlers and he wasn't allowed to carry money and this in al ray he wasn't allowed to have the bottle he, he wasn't allowed to ask for money he couldn't have money on him because or they, they thought he was going to just like start drinking and then the next day he'd be he would be on a flight home which happens but before we get there uh it's uh it's cliff he's on he's on the set he's working he's working as a stuntman uh that's his that's what he does and they have a conversation uh, in the Aldo's room, and they kind of like, you know, um, they're both. What do you call that? Like ex-military guys, you know, they have like that in common, right? Yeah. Or they're they, yeah. they BS. 
best. Yeah, so they, they BS about that. And, um, uh, you know, not to get too detailed, but um, they have this long conversation. And then when he finally gets the bottle, uh, Aldo can, like, clearly think again. And he goes, are you wearing a wig? <laughs> like, like, he wasn't even paying attention to him because yeah. he, only, he only cared about getting that thing from him. And he's like, are you wearing a wig? And I can picture it all being all, like, uh, like silly looking. And he didn't even realize it. And um, and then again, you, I, like, I like knowing that the, the relationship continued and everything. Um, Rick and Cliff. Yeah. Uh, where, like, years later, he, he goes, that was you? Three, yeah. three, things, three things you do when you become an actor as SAG, you know? You sign the SAG, whatever, whatever. Something, something, something. And you, you don't get Aldo Ray a bottle. Yeah, uh, and it's like in the in the movie, um, Cliff goes into you know he's driving off in the the ambulance and like that's the last of it, and of course like the climax of the movie, um, with the members of the Manson family, you know, setting their sights on, um, the Polanski house instead decide to go to Dalton's house because Rick comes out and just like berates them for me, you know, having this noisy ass car. I just like goes off on him. I'm like, all right, we're gonna kill this guy now. Um oh, that becomes the, personal. Yeah, Dude. the preceding thing was that Rick and um Rick and Cliff were ending basically like their professional relationship because they couldn't afford um to have him just, you know, um doing the things that he, he was doing before, which is basically being his um handler. And his, you know, gopher, because obviously he had the situation where his stunt work where, you know, stunt people, the people in the stunt community didn't want to work with him anymore. So it wasn't like he was getting like official work. So he had to really do what it was. Um, Rick needed to get done. Uh, I was saying before how Tarantino, this, you know, this book, by the end, it feel, felt like an autobiography, also a love letter to like Hollywood. So he mentions um, like David Carradine. He mentions the autobiography of David Carradine. And now I'm thinking maybe on set, um, did he have conversations like this? Like where he was Cliff and they're talking about old Hollywood stuff and it was like David Carradine and him. Um, the first actor who signed on for a Tarantino movie uh, was uh, my man. Uh, Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel. And he could probably tell him all these stories. Uh, Lawrence Tierney. Uh, he actually was an actor in the 50s and 40s, like the film noir. Mm-hmm. Got shit, shit, down, shit on his luck. My dad actually worked with him on the trucks, like in the, the docks and stuff. And then he came back with Reservoir Dogs. And, you know, I wonder if Tarantino was able to sit down with him, just BS with him. And uh, this is where he learned a lot of his history, not just from like history books. He learned it from uh, hotel rooms, like just like in a weird, strange place. Like he always... Tarantino always mentions that he had a great time in China, even though it was a hard production, but he partied with these people and he had, he met, you know, these old actors, um, Carradine told him all like old history, he's royalty, you know, or mm-hmm. legacy. Um, yeah. I don't, I felt like in the book, you didn't really like Cliff was present for some of the last parts of the book, but it never really gave him like an ending so I kind of thought that the, you know, this chapter with Aldo Ray was kind of like the epilogue of Cliff's career, or I mean Cliff's arc mm. or story in the book. 
and like you said, it, it like it in a little like doorway line. It's like two years later, mm-hmm. you know, Rick found out he gave him that bottle, so it lets you know it at least reassures you. Oh yeah, they they still ended up, you know, being you know their friendship still went on for for some time. When I was reading this, it made me think like you could take Cliff and Rick. As like a character exercise and just put them in different places, like different times and scenarios. And, and I was like, you know what? They actually did that. It was like Forrest Gump. You know, they put Forrest Gump in all these weird, like, you know, uh, talking into uh, Dick Cavett and uh, John Lennon. I, I could picture like, like, a, like a cliff. Like, what would he say to the Beatles? Like if he met them, like on like the, on the, in LA at, at some point, and he was at a famous club or whatever, or a iconic moment, he was there. Yeah. And I can picture this could be a whole series. You know, yeah. I mean, and before, I'm sure he wrote a lot, yeah. Yeah, before we, like, move on from that chapter, I just wanted to say, like, I, did you notice it kind of started off, like, with Quentin Tarantino doing his his um trademark, like, time altering, where it kind of, mm-hmm. it's, it's two scenes going on at the same time, and they kind of, like, converge into one scene like I, that's what i felt when i was listening when, when i read that chapter yeah like it started off from um aldo ray's perspective and right. it's like describing the hotel room and then it goes to cliff's perspective and it's also direct um is describing like a similar hotel room but you're thinking it's two different mm. hotel rooms and it's kind of like a, a, a contrast when in reality it's like Clifton like 312 and Aldo Ray is in like 307. Yeah, it was like meet meet Aldo and then like meet this. No, yeah. oh, they actually meet up. Um yeah, so that would like you said, this would have been a good character arc closing for uh Cliff's character. Uh he is in the next chapter though. So ready for that. The chapter 23, which is a lot of people have been saying like that's like their favorite chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I did like a lot of the earlier ones too, but this is up there. That again, it's not in the film. Uh, but from listening to podcasts and interviews from Tarantino, I found out that this is sort of bit like based on reality with one of the characters in this scene, the piano player. Yes. Yes, and we will talk about that later on too about it. You know, uh, his stepdad and his mother. Uh, but yeah, so Drinkers Hall of Fame. Yeah, well, um, mm. okay. So what I realized now from watching the rewatching the movie is that this scene was replaced with the FBI, um, you know, mm, yeah, yeah, the meme, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, the, the famous Rick pointing at the TV meme, um, it, it replaced that because in the movie they drive off the set, go back to Rick's house, and it's a fun little. It it, it was one of those things with um. You know, like friends hanging out after work, where it's just like, "Hey, man, this this I got my FBI is coming on. You want to watch it?" He's like, "Man, I got a case of beer in the back, and let's order a pizza." I was hoping you would say that. I, I knew you wanted me to come in and watch the, the the episode of FBI. So that's what happened in the movie. Now in the book, it's a more of a elaborate scene because, um, the tension really with Jim Stacy. Um, it wasn't present in the movie. Like you had the little parts, like the only tension you got out of it was the initial walk up. And again, mm. it didn't have the same context where it's like, 
you know, in a book you're reading it and it's like, all right, who's going to go up to, who's going to introduce who to who first, um, you know, it's his show and I'm guest starring. I used to have my own show. Like there was none of that in the movie. Um, yeah. yeah. In the movie, in the movie, we had the whole um, alternate reality of the Manson bloodbath thing and the flamethrower. We had that, but we didn't have it in the book. In the book, we had the shootout, you know, quote unquote, uh, you know, pissing contest, swinging dicks, you know, yeah. uh, that was in the book. In the movie, he does the Tarantino thing, like where the uh, grindhouse where he cuts. And it's like you know, like you don't even see the stuff. Yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. jarring, and it's like really jarring. And it, made me it was laugh. funny because it was um, it was it was a scene I actually had to kind of like rewind because it was I guess it was a uh, um, uh, um, it was on purpose like a con- continuity error. Like yeah. um, Jim Stacy, who's played by Timothy Oliphant, walks up to Rick Dalton, um, Leonardo DiCaprio. And he takes his hat off and then it cuts back and his hat is like back on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was like, what? jarring. Yeah. I'm like, what? Yeah. So tell and... me. Tell me. Like that whole thing. Like we're like, you hear like the kind you hear the real, I think, like a sound effect of it like like cutting or something like that. That's why I heard when I heard it. Yeah, and it was um it re it, it played out um like it did in a book where he comes and asks him about the um Mm-hmm. you know the the great escape thing but instead of like because remember nobody talks about like the great escape uh steve mcqueen thing at all really outside of that scene so you don't really know the irritation and annoyance that rick gets when it's brought up mm-hmm. as it is in a book like in a book it's like virtually like around every corner somebody asking him about the great escape like you were this close yeah. Um, so what I realized in a movie, and I didn't realize it like when I initially watched it, which was they had like music cues, like as if like um, you know, when you have like a headache and it starts like you know, the headache starts like pounding, like it was that kind of music dum, cue. Dum, dum, dum. Yeah, and then yeah, they had a scene where they inserted him into the great escape. And when I watched it the first time, you know, when it first came out, I misinterpreted that because I thought, like, it mm. was really trying to drive home the fact, like, he could have been um, in The Great Escape. He could have had, you know, the career that Steve McQueen went on to have in, you know, the mid to late 60s, well into the 70s before he died. Um, that's what I interpreted as, but now that I read the book, it's like, nah, in his mind, people think when they bring up the story that, like, they're picturing that he really could have been in The Great Escape, but in his mind, he was like, I'm not, I never really, really got that close. And it's hysterical, like, the elaborate uh, story he goes into, like, if I got that, <laughs> and if, like, well, if Shug, like, missed the plane, and whatever, and then it gets more and more like ludicrous and like silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's basically him trying to make himself feel better. Like I, it wasn't going to happen anyway. And uh, when he asked him about it again, in front of everyone else, again, he's like, this fucking, I mean, you already asked me earlier. Yeah. It, it was like, a, this is like the culmination like the shootout at like the scene that, you know, they would have in the, in the Lancer, they're having it for real life in the LA uh, bar, wherever it is, like the somewhere uh, LA bar. Yeah, Drinkers Hall of Fame. 
Yeah, but I don't know where it's supposed to be. It's somewhere like in like the a, area. Yeah, it's, it, that's the name of the bar. Yeah, yeah. So um, I thought this was fascinating because when we read this, it's we watched, you know, the Viper Room. And I had that in my head where it's like very similar, uh, where it's like, this is um, our domain. Um, leave that shit outside. But like he brought it in and he was like, busting his balls and he's like you you know you know it's like i, I take his very like, this is a thing that's like kind of uh in the back he's a monkey on his back this thing mm-hmm. it's like like it's on his head um it's probably one of the reasons why he's like medicating and everything yeah uh so he went he went to this whole uh elaborate thing of saying that there was no chance for him to get it um but yeah but we even talk let's talk about the the description of the, the room i mean it's great they have uh they 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 mentioned the portraits of different like Hall of Fame worthy drunkards. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was a uh, you know one of the most descriptive parts of uh, of the novel. A lot of a lot of you know it's funny how we talk about old actors and we think of like like people from like the eighties, seventies, sixties, fifties, but they had characters that are from like the twenties, you know, that we don't even remember anymore. Nice. Um, which is interesting because back then it was like fifty years. Uh, uh, Buster Keaton. I didn't know that he was uh, one of those guy type of guys. Um, what else? Did... Oh, John Barrymore. Okay. He, he, we all we all know Drew Barrymore. Is, that's mm-hmm. his, like great. That's her great uncle or something like that. Something mm-hmm. like that. Humphrey Bogart. He was, you know, he's his as a character. He's famous for having the Casablanca role and all those like drinking scenes. But I remember as a kid, Looney Tunes used to make fun of him as like being like a known like drunk yeah um, at least he feels of he was, course yeah he was well, Humphrey Bogart um I can't remember if it, I think it was the African Queen like they actually filmed it in Africa but like the water wasn't um was it yeah I think it was African Queen I was directed by John Houston right uh I'm not sure well it was a movie that was directed by John Houston and the water um and the area was like tainted or whatever or not you know purified I, like stick. yeah not purified yeah. and it would yeah. make people sick so the entire crew got sick except for Humphrey Bogart and John Houston because the whole time they were just drinking whiskey. All right, yeah. They didn't drink anything but whiskey. Yeah, I mean they So they were the only people on the cars that didn't get sick. Uh, that's funny, but like they, they that's kind of encouraged too. Like, uh, uh, it was so hot. It was uh, this thing I was working on, uh, a documentary. It was in Africa, and they were they were not drinking Poland Spring. They were just drinking beer because they would sweat it out right away. Yeah. They, what else are you going to drink? You know. Um, yeah, but we had W. C. Fields. He's like a character. He's very funny, um, but in real life too, that was his thing. Um, so those are real people. Um, I still don't even know that this is a real person or it's just a, a alternate thing where Trudy. He describes the rest of her career. Do you remember yeah, that part? It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a real person. Okay, that's why I love because it's like an alternate reality. Yeah. And instead of, I assume, instead of making like Jackie Brown, he makes a, he adapts, or he makes a remake of a Dillinger movie. Well, not, well, the, Jackie Brown came out in 97. Our movie yeah. would have came out in this alternate reality in 1999. Yeah, I'm assuming like maybe he did both still, but like he, it's, it's Michael Madsen. He mentions Michael Madsen and um, because I, you know, how Jackie Brown's in a, a book adapted from a book. 
this would have been an adapt adapted from a remake from a movie that already happened. And uh, I wonder if that's something he ever like toyed with, because you know Michael Mann eventually made that uh, Public Enemies. It was like a, I think he hypes that movie up. He thinks it's really good. He loves Michael Mann, so that'd be interesting with um, just like all the alternate reality stuff. And then you find out that she actually oh eventually got success. That was interesting for me. Uh, and then one of the key moments in this is the piano player, uh, where we find out that. Um, there's a boy involved, like a five-year-old boy who's a fan of Rick. Um, Quint. So this is supposed to be Quint Tarantino and uh, based on real life where his stepdad was the piano bar player in LA in uh, the 60s and I believe in the 70s. Um, and apparently he did get something signed. I think he got, do you remember what he got signed in real life? Was it uh, Vic Morrow from... Um, the combat show, which they show a poster in a combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And so that's a, that's an important thing where, again, where I keep pushing the fact that this is a very autobiographical and very personal, not just for his love of movies. It's like love of uh, things in his real life. What'd you think of that part with the piano player? I guess it was personal for him to put it in there, but it wasn't like particularly like interesting to me. Um, it just felt very Tarantino-ish, like where he's like, you know, what a movie when it has like this, this, this. Yeah. Well, you were his dude. It, I could just picture that being. It sounded like dialogue from a Tarantino movie. Okay. Uh, yeah, like kind of like um, Fox Sports Five, you know, Fox whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whatever, whatever. Yeah, that's what it. You know. So it just reminded me of like uh, dialogue from. The, the films that we love. Uh, so that's how the, the chapter ends. Yeah, so it's just like, and it's like also blue collar too, where like you go to the bar after work and you just like be bullshit about, um, instead of being a construction worker, you're bullshit about making a pilot. And it's like everyday work. Hey, I'll see you tomorrow. It's going to be the next day. You know, it's, 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 just, it's, blue. it's just like an everyday thing uh, that sounds glamorous, but it's still, you're still in a shitty watering hole and getting drunk, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, what's, what's, like, described throughout the book is, um, and you see in a movie, there's a house at the Playboy Mansion. I mean, there's a party at the Playboy Mansion, and which actually would be an anachronism because they said, like, although there was a Playboy Club in L.A. at the time in 1968, yeah. yeah. Um, he didn't buy the Playboy Mansion until, like, 1974. Yeah. It was still in Chicago, right? I think. Or yeah. yeah. So, but in the book, there was mm. a party at the Playboy Mansion, and that Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski and all these different um, celebrities at the time were at. And apparently, during the party, Roman like um, committed to being on Playboy After Dark, um, without consulting his wife Sharon. And she wanted like a quiet night at home. So the beginning of the chapter starts with uh, them on the drive back from this, you know, filming this TV special that she didn't feel like doing because, of course, she has like this persona. You know, celebrities don't just play characters. They also have like a persona. So she kind of had to play, you know, the, did you know, the, the um, doting, um, glamorous Sharon Tate when really in reality she wanted to stay at home and read a book 
Um, so she was upset, Roman, you know, how like married couples do when, you know, you get like the, the silent treatment and he, you know, long story short, they, he decides to, um, make things up to her by having a pool party at like, you know, the middle of the night, basically. And they invite all of their friends over and of course, to go up to their house, you pass Rick's house. So Rick's out, you know, watering his lawn and listening to line, you know, trying to run lines with his tape recorder. And it was interesting because it made it seem like he had like seven hands because they said he was, he had his whiskey sour and his like German flask um, and his German sign in one hand and his watering plants and he had his tape recorder. Um, so it was just interesting how he, he described it, but Steve McQueen directly after finally clarifying the great escape story drives up and then you come to find out that not only um is you know this person that uh, he he has this infamous that he's paired with in this infamous story about him losing out this role um they also actually knew each other because um Steve McQueen was on a show in the 60s. He had a show, and of course, in this universe, Bounty Law, um, where Rick Dalton was playing Jack Cahill, J.K. Hill was on at the same time. So apparently they hung out with each other and they played pool against each other, two out of three. Um, And Steve McQueen pulls up. And out of his, you know, he's looking at people driving up and he notices it's Steve. So he, you know, he calls to him like, hey, Steve. Uh, he's like, Rick. And it describes like Rick in his head is like, oh, yeah. So he knows. So he he remembers me. And I think he had the um like the, the poster of himself in a, in a driveway. And he's like, that's your house. Um. I might, we, 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 yeah, that's what happens. Part, yeah. yeah, it was kind of like, yeah, I could, yeah, uh, just pay for it. But again, it's very self deprecating. A lot of things that uh, Cliff says, oh, Rick says, uh, the same thing with earlier where he, where he was when he clarifies the great escape story. Uh, he's like, yeah, this pay for it, you know, um, I can, I can live up here, I can afford to live up here. Uh, I'm right next door to where you're going, yeah, type of thing where it's still again like a pissing contest. Uh, but uh, I really not, did enjoy not the only pool, that, pool. but not only that, but what I never realized in all my time, like hearing about like the, the Tate LaBianca murders, I didn't realize that they didn't own that house, like they were renting it. So it's ironic the house that he was going to was rented, and Rick's yeah. house was owned, was yeah, bought, that, bought and owned. That was a big part of uh, earlier in the book, too, uh, in the film, like where owning means yeah. you're not just visiting LA, like I'm from here. And um, it's a big thing and uh, it's a status symbol, but it's like, it's reassuring that he's a success. Uh, but it's interesting that they were renting. They were uh, drifters, you could say, just like the other uh, um, massive people were like drifters, but these people were like glamorous drifters, which uh, that's a big thing in LA. Um, you know, everyone's from somewhere else. Uh, but yeah, Stephen Queen part, uh, that was interesting, but yeah. the actual game though. Let's let's get to the actual billiards. Like, we're like, you know, you could I could have had you. 
was kind of like that where it's like no nah, you, you could have had me but he's like no but i'm serious and it was like one more shot of that and, but it's be- better off that we just like you know leave as a mystery it was one of those things where like you know rick's story i think and this, this is like the final few pages of the book um where rick kind of like uh faces reality or at least accepts reality um which we're going to talk about in a, in a little bit but he's you know you hear him saying it to himself he's like you know they before uh steve mcqueen like drives off into drives off into um into the the driveway of the polanskis he says yeah we gotta we gotta have a rematch or whatever and like rick in his head he's like you know i know this he was like sure and it says rick says knowing this rematch will never happen like that type of thing kind of like uh if you know we like to talk about sports like a minor league guy like striking out an all-time great like who eventually became an all-time great but like oh i struck him out in little league or i struck him out in minor league able you know that type of thing yeah. and it's like i'd rather just hold on to that than drudge it bring it up again and reality hit me where it's like nah, it's just Steve McQueen and I'm you know Rick Dolan yeah and it's interesting because like at no other point you know when the great escape stuff is coming up and it's like well you know I did know Steve and you know Steve knows me we played billiards when we were on you know television like he never brings that up as like uh oh I was you know I was where he he was where I I was at at one point but in the film because we're comparing them now and contrasting them um, when they do show uh, Rick in the film, like imposed into the film, it's kind of like, is it, the question I had uh, was, is it, this is him showing that, yeah, I could have done the scene or is it just, uh, like when I saw it the first time, I thought it was just like a throwaway special effect thing. But after reading the book, it, it was a deeper thing where it's like, no, if I was in this scene, if I was in this film, it still would have been a hit. You know, it wasn't just because it was Steve McQueen. Like I could have, it could have been a, my movie mm-hmm. and I would have, I would have did it. You know, it would have been like, so here's a proof. Literally we filmed it. Like this is what it would have been. Um, but yeah, did we, did we skip 24, the Nebraska gym? That's just a quick little uh, chapter, but um, let me just remind you, it's, um, Again, it's talking about because like the, one of the main themes of this is Rick trying to find a, a, a second life in foreign films, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, when you're overseas. And they tell a story of uh, Lex Barker. And he played a character kind of like your man, James Bond, but it was like a Western. And he did it for like, all right, I'll do it. He went to Germany and did like German um, Westerns. I'm going to say something else. He did German Westerns. And um, it was a hit. But like no one knows about it in America. So like he was still making money, but he did it for a few films and then the character lived on. It's uh, old Shatterhand. And this is something I didn't know about. Like, this is interesting to me. Like they made they made Westerns all over the place. They made like Asian ones too. But Germany mm-hmm. had their own like cinema. Uh and uh it's, it's like another xenophobic uh layer to the book where it's like going over there is like less than. But uh, they just give the backstory. Like again, we're comparing real people with uh, a fictitious character in Rick Dalton. But like Aloe Ray, Lex uh, Barker, yeah. So it's kind of like um, I'm assuming 
like in my like fantasy of like oh, this character in the future i, I want to see rick dolan and like cliff working on like a late 70s like film somewhere you know not just westerns like i want to want to see like it keep going because they mentioned how lex uh, barker like went on to do other things like exploitation and stuff like that so uh that's just one of these like quick chapters that they uh yeah so we're doing this rob and marvin swores calls him mm-hmm. um and this is the second appearance of him in the book but in the movie he didn't outside of the opening scene like he appeared but he he didn't talk like al pacino didn't have any other lines in the movie outside of the opening scene um but he actually calls him on the phone and he's telling him like yeah i got you this job in um europe if you should take it and rick's like still apprehensive and he's like yeah i'm gonna do like the next pilot season you know, maybe I'll catch on, maybe something. And Marvin Swartz <laughs> kind of like just was like, listen, like, dude, it's it's over in Hollywood. Like, nobody's like waiting for like the second career of um Rick Dalton, which apparently happens because of, you know, the climax of the film, which is kind of like, you know, a one paragraph thing in the book which is the, you know, Manson family invading the house and him and Cliff, like, fighting them off. And, you know, he's a, he's a celebrity again because, you know, it's all over, like, world news. But before, the, the, that's the interesting part. Like, the book ends before all, the, all of that. And he basically tells them, like, this is, you know, this is a way for you to reinvent yourself. If you're not big in Hollywood... Um, but you could be big as hell in Spain, Italy, Germany, big, France. Big in Japan. That's an old phrase. Oh, he's big in Japan. That's what yeah, they always say about like, like what do people music. what do people do now? It's like, oh, we have to make this movie marketable to China because mm-hmm. you know, you know, there's a lot of, there's billions of dollars over in China to be got, you know, but this is like 50 years ago, so people weren't thinking that way. So I kind of like in it, like telling people you know, all right, like, go over to Europe and do movies in Europe. It was kind of like, you know, telling somebody, like, okay, like, um, you're not going to be starring in this, like, tentpole um, movie franchise film or even this Oscar-baiting movie. But I got this miniseries for you on Netflix. Like, you'd be starring in it eight one-hour, um, th- you know, eight one-hour episodes, you could get an Emmy out of it, possibly. And, you know, perhaps that's a really hard sell to, like, movie stars. Probably not so much now because next- Netflix money is huge. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the streaming services, like, that money is huge. But it, that's yeah. kind of like the, the parallel or, or kind of like the analogy I can make um, to relate it to what it would be like today. Yeah, today and just in general, it's like the pond, like you know, like the small fish, big pond, and it's like you know, you go to a smaller pond, mm-hmm. uh, get that second chance, uh, uh, reincarnation, you know, your career. But there's like, what's this Rick's fucking problem? Like, you know, Mar- Marvin. Yeah. Uh, it's like you uh, when you weren't looking, the culture changed. Mm-hmm. Is what he says. Like you're still rocking the fucking pompadour, you know. Yeah. Like he's like, look at you, Elvis doesn't even wear a pompadour. <laughs> And it's like, yeah, because like 69, you know, like Elvis has his, he did his return. 
and the, the, the circa 70 and he changed his look um it kind of reminds me of like all this like you know the the anger that rick has it reminds me of like these maga actors like kevin sorbo like purposely trying to like shit on like because he, he keeps on shitting on hippies in this like mm. hippie ethic you know everybody's like kevin sorbo doing like oh i gotta make a woke bullshit movie yeah shut up kevin sorbo go you're not gonna make a movie again you know it's you're never gonna make it so it's <laughs> like you know you're blaming society or culture but like it's not that you know that's why i popped in my head because i think when i read this like kevin sorbo was in the news for doing some stupid shit i think yeah as usual yeah but then he gets another he hangs up the phone i guess you know mm-hmm. he thinks to himself and then he gets another phone call very unexpectedly yes from his eight-year-old co-star trudy yet again and he's like you know what the hell it's like, yeah should i be talking oh, to you is your where's your, does your mom know i'm talking to you yeah yeah like it's just and, like you know late night call it's weird yeah, and then they um actually go over um the scenes, the 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 scene, upcoming scene that they, they're supposed to do, which is like the big scene, which apparent apparently in a movie was um the scene where um uh Wayne Maunders um character who was played by um uh the late great Luke Perry um goes to get uh, Marabella back from Caleb, um, who's holding her at the saloon, and you know she's talking to him, and and she's, you know, basically it, it's a long conversation to get into and all the different stuff that was described. But by the end of the call, um, he starts to appreciate his entire career and his entire life. And it's just this idea that, like, there's so many people, like, for every, like, thousand people that become, try to become, like, f- movie actors or be in the movies, like, ten of them actually get to be in movies. And maybe, like, one of them becomes, like, a superstar. So the fact that he was able to do films, have his own TV show, um, have all these guest spots, and um, is getting ready to embark on his second career in Europe. Um, he starts to appreciate that the fact that he has a house, the fact that he got to sleep with all of these women, kiss all of these famous actresses, work alongside all these famous actors. Like, like think about all the different actors he talked about that he he, he um he co-starred with in films. So you know, once upon a time in Hollywood, I think in his mind he had this movie. He he was living in this movie where you know he's the star but then he steps back and like looks at the whole you know his whole life and finally faces reality and is like man i'm a lucky son of a bitch like i need to appreciate this you know mm-hmm. it's like that fan- one of the great great moments in cheers or one of our favorite shows when sam's like i'm the luckiest son of a bitch you know that whole thing yeah uh appreciate where you're at and everything and uh he can sleep like the night before he couldn't sleep, but like, you know, he had to fucking pass out. But this one, he could probably just like, all right, go to sleep on his own. And it was comforting and uh, very self-reflective, which is yeah. a great thing to do in art. art. Um, yeah. And it was, it was a very subdued end, ending. Like the movie, if the movie ended on this ending, it's like, oh man, what is this like boring shit? Like, mm-hmm. You know, like, well, well, it actually reminded me of True Detective ending, where that seemed very like 
anticlimactic where like remember did you watch that where like it just no. hanged okay so like something happens a big moment happens like a kind of like a um, go in here let's get the bad guy type thing and then like 20 minutes later it ends it's just them two guys like bsing in the parking lot and like you just see like a you know like look up to the, to the stars and it's like tomorrow's another day mm-hmm. they're gonna be they're gonna still be there nothing crazy happened it's just very very subtle and it's like yeah it's like real um but yeah i mean and we do also get like um you get cliff uh, we get a uh, rick dalton um you know he has closure with steve mcqueen too that's a, a huge part of it um but in the book like he's outsmarting him or he he knows um like he he still has like the upper hand in his mind in the book and i just love the dialogue i love the way he he writes the character Tarantino writes the character where he's like yep that's the house that uh bounty law built it's like bounty law <laughs> built that and he's like no that's an expression and then yeah. you know then it's in his head it's like don't fuck and it's just like you know we've been in that same situation where we're like talking to someone and you're just like yeah 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 and then you're just like god this guy's a freaking mimbo you know yeah, yeah. um but yeah he's a very relatable character um i i know it's also a movie but like one of the great characters i've like you know i've read you know because yeah. it's yeah. it's it's layered yeah my only um i want to say criticism but my only gripe is like i i really wish cliff had like an actual ending because after re-watching the movie and reading the book like Cliff is probably like the most one of the most interesting characters ever, and it's like you could. I, I kind of want to see where he goes on. Like I likened it, like I'm enamored with him after the movie, after the book, and I think about uh, the, the only, and I, he's one of the few Quentin Tarantino characters where it's like, oh, I want to see where like he goes on after this, and the only other person I, like in a movie. In one of his movies, I felt that way was um, Jules in Pulp Fiction, where um, and it's, it's a lot of rumors of you know because he's of course gonna come out with more and more books because he's you know segueing into being a novelist. So there's so many stories you know people are saying I could do, which was you know um, the Vega Brothers, which he had to abandon as being an actual film project because. Josh Travolta and Michael Madsen um, obviously can't play younger versions of their characters from the 90s or something that would have had to happen like in the 90s or worse the early 2000s and then another story he could tell is um, what Jules went on to do when he walked the earth like um, came from Kung Fu yeah um and then, you know, another one would be seeing where Cliff Booth was in, you know, where he uh, went on to go or maybe even his exploits in the war, you know, elaborate on that. And, you know, what happened immediately after other than him, like, killing three mobsters. Uh, Cliff, like, that's perfect uh, character to keep going. Like, they could do, like, a comic book where it's, like, realistic, yeah. but have him look like Captain America, but then like, it's really just the next page you turn over and he's like in like a brothel or like, he's like doing some like sleazy thing. Yeah. Uh, okay. So when he, when she says, Trudy says to uh, Rick, you know, you pretend to be a cowboy, but you know, to sum up the two characters that we've been following for 400 pages and a yeah. month in a movie. So like Rick is like a, you know, he's like the boy 
and um, you know, he's pretending to be the cowboy. And Cliff is literally a cowboy, you know, like he's yeah. a stuntman. He's done all this stuff. And um, he has a knee closure, I don't think, or it's like he's just he's going to be walking the earth, you know. So I'm, I'm, I agree with you on that. Rick needs attention. He needs uh, reassurance and everything. And um, it's kind of like the yin and yang where it's like, it's the same, like, this could be the same person. It could be like my, I have two sides, you know, it could be like, I feel like Rick sometimes, but I also like know I can be Cliff sometimes too, you know, it's kind of like that where yeah, need be, you know, I can. That dichotomy. Yeah. And that's what's the best. That's, you know, the balance, you know. Yeah. And it's like um, Quentin's actually, Quentin Tarantino is actually trying to develop Bounty Law into like an actual series. So. But it's just an idea now. It's, it's in development, so who's to say that's, that's what's going to happen? I Well, never say never, because um, during this whole month, I saw Tarantino mention, I'm going to write a book. Yes, it's going to be uh, in, like he said, in 15 years about so, or 20, you know, and he did it. Like, everything he said he's going to do, he, he's done. Yeah. You know, which is very, you know, admirable, I think. Yeah. I, I really, I mean, this is off topic, but I really hope um, he had an idea to kind of do... Um, essentially like a side quill or in in universe like sequel to inglorious bastards which would have been you know killer crow that's probably aside from uh the vega brothers or double v vega whatever it was going to be called and kill bill volume three um the most well-known unproduced movie that he 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 didn't get to do was killer crow which would have been inglorious bastards in the inglorious bastards universe but it would be following some um black pow's where like germans want to kill them but at the same time the united states doesn't give a shit about them because they're black i, I just think it would be yeah. interesting for a movie that would have been perfect it's very much um suicide squad or like um you know, like a, a suicide mission where it's like the government yeah, is like, making like you was, go, and when you come back, you're not gonna be heroes anyway. That type of thing. So it's like, let's just do it for us. That type of yeah. Deal. Like his inspiration for it was um, uh, the Dirty Dozen. Right, right. That's what I meant. You Dirty know, Dozen. with Lee Marvin and and um Ernest Brugnan and um Jim Brown, and it had like a lot of names to it, like Eddie Murphy. Um, I believe Jamie Foxx was attached to it, but it's it. it, it um, he kicked around um, what eventually became Django and Hateful Eight um, as mm. far back as when he was doing Jackie Brown. Mm. Um, and he was kicking around Kill Bill like for many, many years after Jackie Brown had finally made it. So it yeah. wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for him to develop that into a film. Uh, again, to sum this up as well, this was a uh, this was an exercise. This was a thing to clear his palate. Like he, like he finished Kill Bill, or he'll finish um, Jackie Brown, and he like pick up just characters and see where it would go. Then he would put it away. He he put that away. He came back to this after uh, Hateful Eight, and then he made it. But um, when Django was done, he was doing like graphic novels, like storylines, mm -hmm. and he had one. And while he was writing it, he realized that the character was too old. He was like, it, no, it, like it would have had to be. Jimmy Fox, like 15, 20 years, 30 years. And uh, it ended up being, he saw J Sam Jackson playing him and he ended up being the, the Hayflake character. That yeah. grew out of a Django side 
yeah which is you know yeah just before we wrap up i just want to talk about other little um uh knickknacks i noticed when i rewatched the movie so going back to the bruce lee fight um you know reading about it and then watching the movie uh i do know that brad pitt and i think the stunt coordinator felt it would be disrespectful to make the fight as long as it was in the book but i felt like it would have worked better because it would have made the two to me it would have made them look equally matched and the only thing i find like offensive or the only thing i could see somebody finding offensive is that they had bruce lee um the person being acted out like how bruce lee's characters you know acted out like you know the sounds the and all that stuff and it just like i don't i don't think he did that type of shit in real life like when he practiced martial arts it was just to add to the to the movies um but i still feel like his family would still be in their feelings because you know they uh, to, to this day i still don't understand um what their issue is um lots of deleted scenes were in the book what I like I, I said it before, they had the red apple commercial, you know, would you take oh, a yeah. bite of a red apple? And um you know, down to to the yeah, it had the African American had the, the black woman with the big afro saying, Ooh, yeah. And it, it was um the girl from um Love Don't Cost a Thing and she was in Django. I forgot her name, but she's she's been in um Quentin Tarantino's stuff before. Um Oh, and this is, you know, when I said before that certain scenes have added significance because of the context of the book. So as you stated, you know, she became, she went on to have a career as a multi, um, multi-time Academy Award nominee, um, respected actress and all that stuff. So there's a scene and it was like the scene I really like, you know, it's a Quentin Tarantino movie, so I'm saying it regardless. But the scene where I was like, oh, this is going to be really good. Um, when she, um, I think in the, when they showed it in the trailer, it was like very towards the end. And then they cut off like the, the background music where she's whispering in, in his ear. That is the best acting I've ever seen in my whole mm-hmm. life. And he starts crying. Um, and in the movie, it was like a really good scene. But it adds, it adds significance, especially when you realize, you know, in the, the, the few scenes that Trudy was in, you could tell she was really serious about, you know, the craft of acting. But they elaborated on it a lot more in the book. So I think the reason why he started crying is because he knew this girl is going to become a great actress um throughout her career as a matter of fact it says in the book that every time she was nominated for an academy award he was rooting for her so i think in his mind rick dalton he's thinking in his head like if that if that was the best acting she ever saw in her whole life every single scene partner she has for the rest of her life the rest of her career will always be compared to him like did did you did, like did you get that when you or or was that just me? Well, no. There's a lot of undertones of that where it's like, yes, she's an eight year old girl, but it's like he respects her, so it's like, um, you'll never have another like me type of thing. Yeah, and that's like weird because it's a girl, but a little girl, but uh, um, 
yeah, you live on. Like, they, there's a reason why they talk about like the legacy of different eras in this, because yeah. that's how you live on. We're reading about it in a book in 2021, and it's like this is how you live on. You live on through the next generation because they can just like um, badmouth you, or they can just like delete you. They can yeah. just say, oh, you know, and he'll live. So then she'll be like, you know, which I also like that he lived till 2000, at least, you know, the which I like the, the Rick Dalton character. Um, this other but that's like that. No, well, he, he rooted for her in 99. Oh, OK. Right. right you know right, what I mean? Right, so right, I'm assuming right, right. I'm assuming. But I like that. Um, you mentioned. Uh, yeah. But I get yeah, that was my takeaway on that. Um, Bruce Lee, uh, I thought it was like harsher in the book where he was kind of comparing him to. Um, uh oh he was like a fit you know he was like a workout guy fitness guy for the stars and that's why he was trying to get in uh i mean it's not a bad thing like he's hustling you know trying to get his like screenplay made which is like you know what happened um it was a parallel with uh the chapter earlier on with manson trying to like uh hustle his way into the music thing where he's like just another like schmuck like like everyone else trying to make it and like it kind of like humanizes him i don't know charles manson's hard to humanize him but he humanizes them like that. And then they show um, the way they show that in the movie of uh, Bruce Lee. It's like they show that cool scene with uh, Sharon Tate watching herself and they show her we're like working out with Bruce Lee real quick. And then that's the only like head nod that, oh, yeah, he worked with uh, with her, Sharon yeah. Tate. But in the book, it was got more into like the uh, backstory of like what he was doing. And um, films are way different than books. Obviously, every medium is different. You don't have to. You show. You don't tell in movies, and that's yeah. how he showed it. He showed it in one second of them. And that's yeah, that's why Tarantino's good. Speaking of showing and, and not telling, also I forgot the other like um scene that was in the deleted scenes, and I was like, I thought it was in a movie. Um, when Charles Manson goes to the house to look mm. for um one of the Beach Boys or whatever, and they send him. Uh, JC brings sends him down to the landlord. Mm. And you know the it's it's a lot shorter than it was in a book. The conversation, but it's kind of like the same vibe where he's like, "Oh yeah, what do you do?" Um, I'm a manager. You know that, Charlie. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, do you think I could come and like play for you and and all that stuff? And then down to him going back to the Twinkie truck and you know interacting with um Cliff or 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 trying to interact with Cliff down to the what the fuck was that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we've all been there. Like you yeah. know, like weird. you know, when we were oh, together, I... and some crazy ass or some weird dude comes in and does yeah. shit, and I'm, I turn the mic and I'm like, "What the that, fuck?" <laughs> did that happen to me uh, on Wednesday? I went down to the city for some in the morning, and it's like it reminded me of heat, where it's like silence and just like I don't know where you hear a commotion. No mm-hmm. one's paying attention to it. It was a man screaming. Ah, like smacking things, like hitting cars, and just like going up to people's faces, and they just like, it's a, it's a terrifying place down there. I don't know what happened, but like he's like laughing, and I was just like, man, I gotta pretend like I'm. I gotta, you don't say I don't say that word anymore, but I gotta act like I'm loose cannon, you know? Like whoa, like this is crazy, you know? It was like a canyon. It was him just like screaming. Yeah. Uh, but there's also good time, good times with that too, where like uh, something out of, out of nowhere happens, and you're just like, wow, I just saw that. I did, I saw it. Um, yeah, yeah. So before we um and um talking about Quentin Tarantino last week, um, you know, some news. I mean, not really news, but just 
you know, Quentin was, you know, he's doing the rounds because of the book. And he appeared on a podcast. And I guess, you know, his parentage was kind of brought up, you know, and they specifically talked about his mom. And we do know that his father um, was actually a person that tried to get an acting career off in his own right. And it never transpired. And he left uh, Quentin and his mom when he was like two. Um, and then when Quentin's career started going off, uh, you know, the Tarantino name is everywhere, you know, oh, you should cast me because I'm Quentin Tarantino's father and, you know, you'll have my name in these movies. And of course, he ended up, you know, only being in like, you know, TV shows you've never heard of and movies you find on a discount rack. So it never really um, went off, but nobody really knows too, too much about his parentage, but he dropped like a little nugget this past week when asked about, you know, um, his, his relationship with his mother. Okay. So Quentin Tarantino uh, was, he would be in regular school, you know, like middle school. Um, and instead of doing what you're, you know, what you're supposed to do, it was just like, you know, math and everything, he was writing his own screenplays already. Mm-hmm. And in the, you know, in, in a moment where he got in trouble, uh, basically they were saying that he was, it was a blatant show like rebellion. Um, and in a moment where he's like, this is what I love to do. I know I'm a kid, but this is what I love to do. Like he saw his mom side with like this principle. And, yeah. uh, and then he also went on to say that, um, like, obviously it's like, still means something to him because again, he probably said it in his own, like joke, like his tone, the way he talks, but he's like, um, Oh yeah, oh yeah, and that like uh, that little writing career you got going on. Oh, that shit's that shit is fucking over now. Like that, like kind of like sarcastic, belittling, mm-hmm. and um, I mean, if that drove him, I mean, I don't know. Like, what do you? Um, we talked about kind of earlier where it's like encourage encourage it, but also have a backup plan. Yeah, Tarantino I mean, went he went full throttle. He never he didn't have a backup plan. Yeah, it's a uh, one of those things. You, it's a lot to. As as people's um, therapists say, there's a lot to unpack here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because she said that, this is the whole the, the main story of it, or the the click, the thing that gets you to click on a story to lead, which is that from that moment he prom. A matter of fact, I think a lot of the article I sent you and a lot of articles I've seen don't even mention the part about her like telling him like not to write or Mm. they don't put that part it just says Quentin Tarantino says he doesn't give his mom he he doesn't give his mom a penny he vowed to never give her a penny of his fortune that's all you will read so then when you click it and you actually read and it's like elaborate a matter of fact the first one that I the first thing I read was that she essentially um when they were in Tennessee, uh, she met his father and she wanted to be emancipated um, as a minor. And one way you could do it back then was you'd get married. Because once you get married, it's like, okay, like you're not your parents' responsibility. Um, you're your own person. Um, and you know, you could go on with your life. And then unexpectedly she became pregnant with Quentin 
um, her and his father, Tony Tarantino, moved out to L.A. Uh, eventually, he left, as I just stated. And she raised him on her own until she met his stepfather, who we described or who we described in the book. And, you know, he, he added um, as a character in his book. Um, so they had a relationship, uh, him and the stepfather, probably for the rest of his life. But he divorced his mom, I think, in like 1977. So around his, you know, around his like teenage years. Um, so for the most part, he was, you know, with his mom. And she was dating. Obviously, that's what happens with single mothers. You know, he's at that very impressionable age. Right. You know, he's becoming a man himself. And he's seen, you know, like, other, you know, it's, that's very deep, you know, if I right. put, put myself in his shoes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And um, and then, as you said, you read and you found out, like, he wasn't doing well in school. And I believe, wasn't he um, diagnosed as an adult with, like, dyslexia? Uh, I believe so. Uh, I remember reading it about him and also um, Tim Burton. Yeah, so, so yeah, it could so, be the same. So obviously there were reasons as to why he probably wasn't doing well in school. And basically his mom told him, you know, all right, like you have to you you need to stop writing and start focusing on school. And um for us being fans of his, we're glad like he didn't listen because he's you know, the thing she stopped him from doing was writing movie scripts at six years old, and he's literally worth 120 million dollars i know because that's what the article said <laughs> yeah, yeah um and he's a two-time academy award winner for writing movies yeah i mean um i think we, we talked we talked about this a little bit but uh if i was if i was a parent i would encourage not force kids to do things but i would encourage them i would leave, leave instruments around and whatever they get drawn to themselves mm-hmm. you know nurture it you know naturally organically don't force it because you see a lot of people that do uh they learn like a cello and then like they hate it at the end and they don't even want it. they become like really super successful like and then they don't want to do it uh you know like i don't have 120 million in the bank yet but mm-hmm. i was i used to get in trouble for writing stories in, in school i'm sure i i used to write like wrestling stuff and you know when i was in like fourth grade uh every couple of christmases i would always get like books from like my family and my parents are like you know what, what is mike like he wants to I, when i was like five i was like i want to be a filmmaker i i just just in my head mm-hmm. and they encouraged me by i have all these books everywhere you know like screenwriting for dummies i still have that from like 20 years ago 15 years ago right. you know and it's um you know it's encouraging and i now nowadays yeah. I mean, I mean, you, go to, you go to an alternative school now probably like for like arts you know yeah and it's a, it's like a different time because um what would you use at least back then if your kid was like oh i want to be a baseball player when i grow up what do you do you put them on a baseball team or you know whatever if they wanted to get in sports you put them on a sports team um and you get them, I, I guess one of the things was like, you know, YMCA or like the Boys and Girls Club. But those things don't teach you how to become um, screenwriters and stuff. Like when I was a kid, as you said, you know, you want to get into screen to, to, to filmmaking. So I got into like a digital um, film editing class. So that's why you see 
you know, stuff on the mm-hmm. Show Me The Money YouTube channel. So please check that out. Message. Yeah. <laughs> Message. Famous plug. Um, but yeah, you're saying it, it's realistic. It, yeah. it was realistically like, okay, it goes a little bit for a while and we'll see what happens. Yeah, and uh, I, I, High school has had it, you know? And I completely understand, like, a parent, because um, obviously if you're a parent and, like, the school's calling you in, it's like, yo, like, your son's getting, like, Ds and Fs on his schoolwork. And, you know, when you look in his notebook, it's not even um, math problems. It's, you know, Captain, I forgot the name of the exact play that he was writing. He, he said it, but um, it's Captain Dynamo and the Space Rangers or some shit like that. You know, obviously, as a parent, you know, it's easy for us to say we don't have kids. Um, the closest thing we have is like us being kids and being you know, the kids where the, the teacher is calling home and writing notes home about. So, of course, we're going to lean that way. Um, so, but, you know, and as a if, if you're a parent, especially a single parent, it's like if you ignore what the school says, it it's um. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? If you ignore the school and like you just. So, yeah. oh, like you're like coddling the kid, or like you're, um, yeah, it's like you don't care, like, yeah, yeah you're ambivalent to, to this kid, um, succeeding in school. There seems to be an extreme now where it's like back then it was like the principal could like beat you up, <laughs> like, and the, the parents would be like, What'd you do? Uh, but now it's kind of like, What'd you do to the principal? Yeah. You know, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. another extreme, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I can yeah. see like, a healthy the- balance that we need to find in this, you know. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like you could easily just like that whole like this writing, this little writing shit, especially mm-hmm. when it's said in a sar- sarcastic tone, because as a child, um, it isn't so much what you say it's how you say it. Like those type yeah. of things like stick with you. Yeah. And that's what Tarantino said. He goes, there's consequences of words you use when you're dealing with your children. Right. So that was, that was his report. And you know, he, he, I don't know if it was him being rebellious, but him like ignoring her led to him being successful. So it's haha. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's like she could have easily just said, All right, like I understand this is something you're passionate about, but uh, between the hours of uh, 8 and 3 p.m. and or Monday through Friday, and when you're not doing homework, that's when you could focus on it. Uh, on the weekends, you could write as much as you want. If you want to, st- if if you want to stay up an extra half an hour, um, past your bedtime to write, that's fine. But just to totally squash it, like, of course, and it's not like he's like an asshole to her. He at least, he at least gave, like context to his whole feeling which is that when he says he wasn't spending a a penny on his mother right what he said was i'm not buying you a house and i'm not buying you a cadillac and you're not gonna get vacations and stuff like that so the stuff he's talking about is um things that he is able to afford now that he's this famous academy award-winning rich wealthy filmmaker those are not the things you're gonna get 
But where did he say he he would help his mother out, right? Mm. When she got in trouble with the IRS. It ain't like, oh, mom, you're in trouble with the IRS? Well, you told me that um, this thing where I'm making money from that I could help you out of your problem, um, you know, you, you discourage me from doing that thing. Like you're, I'm not going to give my money to help you. Like, I don't give, I don't give a damn if they throw you in jail for not paying your taxes. He's like, nah, like I helped her out because she, you know, she was in a jam. And I think that's fair. Like for me personally, like if, you know, Shug Me The Mooney blows up and we were rich as all hell, there is definitely people that I'm not giving money to. Um, or 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 spoiling because I'm now in this position of power, and you know that, that's my right. Well, yeah. Like, if you made if you made my life tougher to get where I'm at, why would I be rewarding you? It, you wouldn't you wouldn't spoil them, but you also wouldn't punish them. Like, yeah, like she need, if, yeah, if, when she needed them, he did it. It wasn't like, he's like, I'm going to see you right under the jail, you know? Yeah. Like you got sick. I'll try to help you out with your medical expenses. Um, you need to keep the light, lights on. I'll help you out with that. Um, you know, you're getting older and you need to be, you need money to go into a retirement facility. I'll help you out with that kind of stuff. Am I going to uh, buy you um, a European cruise in the Mediterranean? Nah. <laughs> mm. Plain and simple. Like, there was this thing, and it's kind of like the opposite um, with Dr. Dre, mm. um, where it came out like his daughter's like homeless and uh. her kids are homeless. And Dr. Dre is like a fucking billionaire. And it's like, I can't imagine being a parent and having my child or my grandchildren being out on the street um, and not having a place to live. Nobody's saying, like, you have to spoil them. But, I mean, come on. Like, you could easily say, like, all right, I'll pay first, last security and at least the first month of groceries in this house. And you get your shit together, get a job, and you the upkeep and the maintenance and stuff and paying the bills and stuff like that is all on you. And then if the kids, if she can't afford to do that with the kids, all right, I'm Dr. Dre, I'm a billionaire. So I have this big ass house. If I don't have this big ass house, I have a house here, I have a house there. Your kids could come and stay with me. Cause it's not like Dr. Dre is, you know, making actively making music now, like when he was in his prominence, but at the same time, he has had this history of being um, abusive to his, at least uh, one of his child's mothers, um, Michelle, who was an uh, artist. Um, and you, you, so God only knows he might have treated his child's mom. I mean, his um, his child's mother like crap when she was a kid, and I probably had. Um, traumatic effects on her growing up you know so the least he could do now is to take care of her that she's in a time of need and another thing is there's grandchildren involved like they don't have anything to do with whatever your relationship is with their parent that's still um your family 
I still you're you're flesh and blood. There's a lot of extremes. There's a lot of extremes. I can also bring up a very popular thing in the last few months, Bernie Spears, the free Britney thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you could bring that up to where that's an extreme where uh, you know, she's like a source of income for like a whole, a whole staff and everything. And like, where, you know, how, how do you handle that? Uh, and she's someone who was young, started from young. So maybe she, obviously the parents were active in uh, encouraging her to get into, you know, Hollywood, not Hollywood, but like entertainment. And, you know, she made it. And then we'll be seeing what, what has happened. Um, but yeah, there's other people that are young. Uh, they start very young and they have, they seem to have like these gifts and everything and you can nurture it. Um, and then I think, I think I can segue into Val Kilmer with. Uh, yeah. And just before we yeah. wrap it up, like you, mm-hmm. sent, you sent me an article where they finally got a quote from his mom, yeah. where she's like, Hey, listen, I was happy to be at his, you know, to dance with them at his wedding. And now he's blessed me with a grandson. I know, and she's like, you know, I know people take, you know, certain words out of like an article and run away with it. But, you know, me and my son, we're good. There's no like hard feelings, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, I like admittedly, I haven't listened to the podcast. So God only knows what the context was of, of you know, where, you know, that, that, that came to be, you know? Yeah, context is king. That's why uh, a lot of podcasts that I, I've listened to, and there's like one quote from it. I'm like, whoa, that nothing. That was so out of context. Mm-hmm. But um, so yeah. But I I, I'm, I seen Tarantino say like outlandish stuff. Like uh, he's provocateur, you know. Yeah. He's Tarantino. He's an original. He's an American original. Uh, and that's why we just spent five weeks reading his book because it's always something good for us to uh, have a great conversation about. Uh, we, we're going to talk about another uh, another person uh, that we grew up with, uh, mm-hmm. always being around. Um, most probably most iconic uh, for Top Gun and Batman. And if you go back to the beginning, we did Bat- uh, Bruce Wayne drip, and he was on the list. Yeah, he was mine, I believe. That and then you, you you had Adam West. So uh, we're going to talk about Val Kilmer, underrated guy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, Val Kilmer, Val. Um, you know, I've seen him in movies going back to the beginning. Um, he's like, he's seen, he, he was always there, you know, like a whole lot of the movies, right? What's your earliest memory of uh, uh, like what film? Batman Forever. Yeah, and that's huge. Yeah. Um, I, have a, I have a picture of me as him, like with like a Photoshop thing when I was a kid. Um, but then later in life, uh, I started noticing um, more artistic ventures. Um, and this is kind of like what this documentary focuses on. It's uh, much like uh, how we talked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where it was self-introspective. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, this is basically because he he does paint, and it's basically like a self-portrait uh, in like a in a docu form. Um, did you know? I didn't know much about his uh, background being like a very uh, Juilliard, you know, trained actor and. Um, what really captivated me right away, I was like, all right, I'll, I'll watch it. But he has uh, hundreds and hundreds of like home videos. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that was the hook. Um, he has footage from like the 60s, like reel to reels, like uh, all stuff I'm really into. I've been making home videos since I was three years old. There's a video of me as gunman in 1992 or whatever. 
Uh, I still have a bunch of them. You know, I mean, like, you know, I have, I still have them. And it seems like, like Tarantino from the beginning, he, um, he had a goal. It was to be a creative individual. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems that he had the ability to uh, flourish in his uh, background. Um, but if you've seen uh, all the home movies he made, uh, it just was like really interesting to see how uh, someone made it, like just by doing home videos. Like he, he did a Batman parody in like the 1970 with his brother. Um, and that was fun to watch in the beginning. And then um, I was like, his voice sounds different. And then you find out that it's being narrated by Jack Hilmer, his son. No, no. And uh, Val Kilmer, um, I mean, it's been in the news, like, does he or, you know, is he sick, whatever. But he had his, like, throat uh, worked on for throat cancer, so he can't speak anymore. Mm-hmm. So, like, this great actor, he lost his uh, voice. Um, so, again, this is very, um, you know, uh, personal because his son is act- using uh, his own voice to read the words of his father. And he goes through this whole career and there's a part where um, he goes to uh, Juilliard and there's other actors that eventually become big too. Um, not so much the Brat Pack, but like there's a play where that he does in like 82, 83 that he was supposed to be like the number one guy. He was supposed to get the lead. And then at the last minute, he, um, he didn't get it. and went to Sean Penn. So Sean Penn, uh, Kevin Bacon and him uh, and these are guys in like in the 80s that would become like big movie stars for decades to come till today. Um, you know, then, you know, like, uh, remember as a kid, like Real Genius would be on TV all the time, right? On Comedy Central. It was like this like kind of silly 80s movie. Uh, so he did that movie. That was his like first big break. And uh, it's fascinating because then he did Top Gun and Top Gun had Tom Cruise, uh uh, Anthony uh, Anthony uh, Edwards. Anthony Edwards and um, you know, Tom Cruise, him, Kevin Bacon. Uh, no, that was another one. But no, my point Ryan is that was in there for a spell. Yeah, so it's all like guys who did like silly movies earlier. Uh, not like, like like things we like talking about, like the um, trying to get laid movies. You remember we talked about like Forkies and stuff. Mm-hmm. So we had Risky Business, you know. And then this was like their first time. I mean, uh, well, Tom Cruise had like all the right moves. Yeah, um, and the outsiders and stuff. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah. So while you're watching this docu, um, you can see him like documenting everything from the '60s all the way till now, and like he has it here. He has it, you know, living document, and uh, that just reminded me of uh, like he saw it as important, and it's something I would have like I did, and uh, you know, it's great to have a good a living testament testimony of like who he was um yeah i mean the other thing i say about it is that if it was today he'd be like a youtube guy when he was like five you know mm-hmm. but he was doing this like old school with the reel to reels um and it, it just became his life um you know tombstone is a huge movie right so that was a big moment but there's a there's a character he plays that's based on a real life guy, you know, Doc Holliday, and yeah. he's dying. Um, so this is a great moment where, like the you know, like it's like an autobiography, 
he was playing this character who uh, became sick, tuberculosis. He lost his uh, dental practice. And uh, the way they showed it was like mirroring, mirroring Val Kilmer walking around like Comic Cons. Cause I saw him at a Comic Con once and like he was like ill, but he kept, he kept going, going for it, going with it. Yeah, I forgot he was in that movie. I know, like, the, they had Tombstone and, like, Wyatt Earp, like, going up against each other. Like, it was, which one could do Wyatt Earp, like, first? It was, like, Armageddon, like, uh, Deep Impact, you know, how where it's, like, two projects that are, like, in infancy, like, who's going to come out first with it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they both came out. I always liked Wyatt Earp more because it was more, like, I always thought it was more, like, serious looking. Like, I thought Tombstone was more, like, action fun. But now, at this point, I'm like, you know what? I think I might have get into Tombstone more because it's, like, I don't have to think so much in it. But, yeah, so we're going to talk about Batman. That was his big break, you know, more so than everything. Uh, but he was, as an artist, but he keeps stressing that he was an artist. Uh, he goes, like, how many times was it me just putting my hands on my hips? You know, it's like he was frustrated with it. Mm-hmm. So, um he immediately, you know, he he didn't sign on for the next one. Yeah, him uh, and now, Joel Schumacher had like were feuding okay, while okay. making it. So as as a kid and growing up watching movies, I always heard rumors that he was difficult. He was a dance music, but in a good way. I like eccentric people, eccentric artists. So check this out. You will you you appreciate this. Since he had home videos since day one, from like when they first came out in like the early 70s, like the actual videotape ones, uh, he was making these movies and he started sending casting and directors audition tapes unsolicited, you know, just like so they, they have him as uh, as uh, what's his name? Um, the Goodfellas, they have him as uh, what's his name again? Henry Hill, Henry Hill in character, he made like a whole mini movie that he oh, he has and they show it uh he did um you know top gun stuff like he would really got into it. i mean i guess you could say it's kind of like all right dude you're just making a movie but like he got into these characters he was a man who liked you know becoming uh you know different these portray different characters um the one that i'm bringing this up because it was a, it was a good episode i remember we, we did the uh, our favorite musical biopics and in that episode i mentioned how um he sent uh, Oliver Stone videos and audio tapes of, oh, this is my favorite door song. Like, I would like to have this one, whatever, whatever. He's like, yeah, yeah, all right. And he's like, did you listen to it? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, that was me. You know, like he, like it was him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh shit, I thought, I thought that was, I thought that was Jim Morrison. So, uh, you know, so like just having this footage of all, all these, uh, audition tapes that that he has that he filmed himself and you know showed like he had either you know he had great creativity or just a lot of time on his hands <laughs> like that's something i would have done like get into these characters um all right so batman was a huge you know success but like it was mixed reviews and he you know Valcomers saw himself as a guy who by 28 i can i could probably play hamlet that's like my goal like he, he wanted to be like a stage actor and everything um so from batman he had disagreements he moved on uh michael he wanted to work with michael mann did he um and then from there well the 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 interesting thing about batman is that he was like he could have been batman you know and then when batman came out in the late 60s he made his own batman movies with his brother so he's like ah everyone wants to be batman you know every boy wants to be batman 
and then like he realized he's like yeah every boy wants to beat batman and they don't want to play him and, like it's not the same it was like a kind of like a letdown mm-hmm. um but people kind of were like oh he, who cares who plays batman and he was kind of like shit you know like all you see is his lips and stuff and so i kind of like bummed him out um he got kind of um turned off from hollywood but the interesting thing is that he was exploring like he went on a safari and they're like where is he i mean he he got the he got he was on the cover of like a, the vanity fair or uh variety saying he got the, the job and i like, didn't know where he was he was in like like south africa somewhere like in a bat cave literally mm. um so he was an eccentric guy um it was supposed to be a big it was supposed to be a big hit but uh it was a remake like we like talking about the 60s shows being remade in the 90s the saint was one uh, it was like a British show that where it was like a spy thing. You know, you, you remember that, right? Yeah, I love the saying. I used to watch it every day. After okay. School and high school. All right. So in that, um, it's like, um, what do you call that? Like going undercover, like you know, different uh, characters, like. Well, SP- it, um, essentially, he was like a con man. Mm, yeah. But he was like a con man with like the. Would uh, how would you describe it? with the, the heart the, of gold? Not, not even really with the heart of gold, but like a con man, um, kind of like a Robin Hood type way. Yeah, yeah or morals. Oh uh, yeah, because he was like a guy. Um, he was originally played by Roger Moore, so that's right. of course why I got interested in it because the James Bond, um, thing. A matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why Roger Moore replaced um Sean Connery and George Lazenby based off of the saint he actually was supposed to replace sean connery by the time of on her majesty's secret service but he couldn't get out of his contract for the saint um and then they chose george lazenby and then they brought back sean connery for Mm -hmm. diamonds are forever and by the time and sean connery only came back for diamonds um or forever because they paid him shit ton of money and then offered to finance like other movies that he wanted to do so it was like a one-off thing long story short it was enough time that you know the saint went off air so roger moore became available and uh, he became james Bond. but i used to watch the saint every day on bbc um after school they would have that by the time i reached home from school and then the hour after was like Benny Hill. So I used to watch The Saint and then Benny Hill every Benny day. Hill after school, high school. Yeah. Hey, that, that's that uh, little British yeah. humor. You got, you got the British humor going in the... Um, yeah, hilarious. Yeah. So like essentially The Saint was... Um, there's a guy who lost his memory and he um, decided to take the name of um, The Saints, The Knights Templar and he chose the name Simon. So his name was Simon Templar. And he would just go around and um, assume different identities and help different people that needed help. Um, kind of like Rem- Remington Steel, kind of basically the same premise, but, you know, different and before. So they remade that into a movie. And I really, like, care for it because it... um. I didn't really care for it. I didn't really like the movie because, like, it was Val Kilmer being, like, you know, Val Kilmer. And he didn't really have, like, the um, enthusiasm of Roger Moore, which kind of sucked because it had Elizabeth, Elizabeth Shue 
who you know if you listen to the show you know i love like elizabeth shoe so i was kind of disappointed in in that movie all right so the cool thing about the docu was that uh val Kilmer, like they unearthed his like home videos and um you know you could say he used it as like a a, a tool but it was also kind of like a defense we- a mechanism because um he was filming nonstop on the set of this uh, Doom project, a remake of Dialing of Dr. Moreau, no. or 90s version of it. And I remember watching in theaters and being like, this is be- this is like a work of art. But I like, because, you know, it was like crazy animal creatures and like Marlon Brando being all weird and a little small guy. That, I think he was Pedro's buddy. Yeah. And um, and he's like, you could tell he's being passive aggressive and like really weird. And he's like, uh, oh, Marlon, Marlon. And it's not Marlon Brando. It's like, some, it's like a, uh, a stand-in because mm-hmm. he... he you know, he was like, and there's a shot of uh, Val Comer like, what are you doing, Marlon? And he's like, he's, he's like, push me. <laughs> he's on a hammock. And he's like, push me. Mm-hmm. I'm a fade out. He goes, I'm a fade out to that. And it just ends. And it's like, he has footage of the guy, um, the one, no, was I said Frank and Frankenheimer, John Frankenheimer. Mm-hmm. No, John, John Frankenheimer. And he's like, turn off the camera. And he's like, no. He was like, we're getting really weird. And I just like seeing that like Rizzo because I always heard rumors that like I don't know I mean like if we stay stay on the Batman path you remember the stories about Catwoman the one who was like gonna play Catwoman Sean Young yeah Sean Young so she would, like she, she would like you know like show up and stuff so I can tell why you know people were like this guy's a little you know but uh you know he cared about it and, and a lot of these movies became uh, flops yeah. and then yeah. I love Wonderland and like they skip over that they show him being really weird and eccentric on uh. Uh, talk shows like Letterman, the show on, on uh, SNL, and so then they skip these movies. Um, but I liked it. the Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was a big deal to me when I was in like high school. I liked mm-hmm. that movie. I was like, oh, I was like Robert Downey. Oh wow! And like he had to put up his money or something like that because no one would give Robert Downey insurance money because he he was coming right out of jail or whatever. Yeah, prison, prison. You know, so he helped him out and he played a weird character. I think he like he he made some odd choices, but it's like it was interesting character. Um, I mean, Brando himself, like, why would he show up? He showed up on set with that weird white. He wasn't supposed to look like that. You know, like in the other crazy pr- pr- uh, production he was on was the uh, Apocalypse Now. And I just like the eccentricity of it. Um, yeah, I didn't realize, like I was telling you, I didn't really, because I, I, I know like the background of the movie and like the the making of it is a lot more famous of, than the movie yeah yeah and i was thinking in my head i was like val Kilmer was in the island of dr moreau right and then i was like nah it's a guy that kind of looks like it was a guy that looks like val Kilmer. and then i did my research i was like oh shit yeah he was in that movie but it's like all the other stuff on top of it is just like yeah, you kind of forget a guy. He was actually in it, and of course, it's like in our post. It came out around the same time as you know Batman and Robin, hmm. which he turned down. So, it, you know, it, it, in cinematic history, it's always oh, this guy turned down this movie for that movie, and et cetera, et cetera. And both of the movies were like bad, hmm. but obviously, you know, Batman and Robin was we're gonna make more, was gonna make more money. You know, it's kind of like when we did Wild Wild West, and we were talking about. How, uh, Will Smith turned down The Matrix for Wild Wild West. Mm, uh, yeah, he regretted it. And I think it wasn't so much that Val Kilmer turned down Batman for Dr. Um, Island of Dr. Moreau. It was just that he turned down Batman and just happened 
to be doing the island of Dr. Moreau. But yeah, like his his career kind of like it kind of took um like a like a downturn um towards you know the early two thousands um because the same thing like once upon a time in Hollywood is cyclical. It's always some new fresh handsome uh lead actor that comes in and that kind of pushes the guy of yesteryear to kind of fall into the the background and i just i was like i know he was acting in a bunch of like straight to dvd movies and then i was trying to remember i was like i do remember him like appearing real randomly as like the bad guy in like a comedy movie mcgruber yeah well i was getting thought so i was thinking in my head i was like it, it was something stupid it was something stupid and i was like Oh yeah, it was McGruber, and I just double checked on. Yeah, it was McGruber. He was he was a bad guy, and not. But yeah, I you know I, I don't I wasn't like a huge huge fan of Val Kilmer. I didn't you know I I love Batman. It's like my favorite superhero. But and I followed the career of like George Clooney, um, after Batman, um, Batman and Robin. But I never really was into Val Kilmer like that. So it's only like three movies of his that like. I, I I liked, which was you know of course Batman Forever, and even I'd say liked very loosely, Heat. Um, it was one of those movies where he was like, in this movie with like, he was the young fresh face, but guess what? Like, he was in there with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, so he was kind of like you know pushed to the back, and it was you know um 1995. That came out, so it was the same time as Batman. And then my favorite movie is I used to watch it a lot with my father when I was young. Um, when it came on on pay per view because we got that illegal cable. Wink, wink. Um, Fox. Michael Douglas. It's a movie actually based on like it's crazy. That's a true story, but it's actually they kind of exaggerated a bit, which is Ghost in the Darkness. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, it's yeah. a movie about some lions that were like terrorizing like this African village, and they brought in like these European hunters, um, played by Michael Douglas and Val Kilmer. And yeah. It's like a cool movie because you know I'm coming off of like Lion King, and I really like 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 animals as a lion. It was like my favorite animal, and I do they was just like in this movie just fucking these people up. But I was rooting for the lion. I was like, yeah, like. Kill him, <laughs> kill him. <laughs> I, I, I saw that. In, yeah, my my dad took us to see that in theaters, and um, it came off a string of like you. Of course, you had Jurassic Park, but then you had Congo, then yeah. you had this, and this was like the next one. This was like '96, so I I forgot that like I used to go to the movies like once a week, pretty much. Like mm-hmm. I had like the ticket stubs from '97, '98. It's like like 80 like 60 of them and it's like what like, again there's only like four bucks for a ticket like, but the ink's all faded now yeah it's not even there you only see it and it's like uh i got some with like star wars on it i don't even know which which star wars exactly because it's faded but yeah speaking of goals something i worked on was in the same theater i saw those so then i had to like hang that up i have that somewhere that was a little uh good thing um yeah but you know, of course, he fell into obscurity, but they show home videos. So there's a scene where he's doing like a, a monologue and he's like cutting his own hair off. And that usually is a sign that you're like trying, trying to like start over or whatever. So obviously they're insinuating that like he had all the success, all this potential. Um, like you said, the new guy on town, like 
new kid in, on the block. They had um, the home video from the early 80s, and it was like the next big guys. It was Sean Penn, it was him, it was Tom Cruise, and even Kevin Bacon, and they show like all these other guys, and they're together, and they're not famous. They're not like big yet. They're doing Broadway still. And then like a year later, that's when everyone came out with their little uh, breakout hits and uh, fun movies. Like he was in like an airplane type movie that I used to watch, Top Secret. And then they got the big hit. And, um, you know, they all went there. They all went to like the movie star realm. And uh, of course, they, they skipped through all those movies in the 2000s. But he came across this, uh, a new character that he wanted to play. And it probably will be his thing that people remember him by to uh mark twain he played mark twain in like real life like he would go up and do like because he called him he said that mark twain like the america's first stand-up whatever he would say stuff like that and then he would like interact with the crowd on broadway and it was um work crowd work but he was in character so you know he was pl he was playing a character who was playing a character because you know mark twain is a samuel clemens right so it's like weird that he was playing a character within a character and um he did this all the time he did with the saint where he's playing a character playing different characters and um you know i think that he is he's eccentric uh a lot of people maybe he's off putting the way he uh handled himself like uh took, took things to extreme um you know he, pl he played jim morrison who was very similar similar to that um and that's like one of my favorite biopics yeah, it's just sad because, you know, it reminds me also of like Michael J. Fox where I don't want to, he did so many great things, but in his prime, like, you know, he, he had to like retire from like filming and stuff. And uh, you haven't seen this guy in 10 years. And it not only is solely on his talent or his like uh, reputation, it's something happened to him that you can't really help. And uh I was very excited to see this docu that's coming that was coming out with Robert Downey Jr. and his dad, and he just passed. And I wanted to see that. I wanted to see their relationship play out like in a constructive, like you know, meta, like a film about a film. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't expect going into this that um, it's kind of like a bonding thing between uh, Jack uh, Kilmer uh, because he was born when they like after they got divorced or like you know at the same time. So. You know, it's it's a nice piece. If you you check it out, it's on uh, Amazon. I know Amazon is more hard to uh, track down. The person, the his son with his wife, the one uh, he met when he was doing Willow, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and they got they broke up after a few years. Yeah, you got to forget about Willow too. But um, yeah, he had a lot. Of, he had like a lot of the. Uh, you still see Tom Cruise. You know, uh, he's come back with doing his own movies but he again he had a he had to like climb back um you know he's like a movie star and you know he he, he did it his way and uh this is just a nice little like piece if you appreciate it, you know, his movies or just appreciate um uh the relationship he has with the son where it's like you know he, his son is basically like watching his home videos and, like editing them together pretty much and like he's seen his dad like from when he's like five making his own movies till now he's probably like, he's like 60 and um, you know, he played everything out on film and that's what he wanted to do when he's five and he ended up doing it till today. Mm. And that's something special. I think that's something with the podcast where like, Hey, one day you can see my, all my shows that's going to live on, you know? Okay. We talked about this before where WWE uh, 
had a, a mass firings, mass releases uh, recently. But now that we're in August, um, pretty sure over 50 uh, wrestlers, like talent, uh, have been released in 2021 from their WWE slash NXT contracts. Uh, and that's not even including um, employees, like actual proper employees. So there's a lot of talk um, of what it means. Um, one of the top faces, top talents for the past like half decade, decade more, was the character Bray Wyatt. Um, another guy with a lot of potential where like they seemed to build him up and then at the last second just like pull the rug from under him mm-hmm. as, as a character. Um, but I don't remember him ever winning, you know. Um, I mean, the last time you saw him, he lost, he lost a what's your name, um, Alexa Bliss. All right, yeah. so Bray White, Wyndham, uh, Rotunda. Uh, he he was off TV for a while since WrestleMania. Um, but now we're finding out that even his like his wife left too in April, mm-hmm. uh, during the first slew. Uh, his brother, Bo Dallas, uh, Bo Wyndham. Yeah, he left earlier to he said, I'm just going to do real estate. So he like left the business. And then a year before that, uh, Mike Rotunda, IRS left. So like the whole family, like, you know, got pretty much like you would think that like uh, they have like a legacy thing with there, but WWE moved on from them. Um, I mean, there's other other names, too. I mean, we're going to talk about NXT, but we're, gonna, we're forgetting about Ric Flair, too. Another you know, a name. Yeah. that they didn't have a they didn't have a problem with it's just okay find work elsewhere and you know we'll, we'll agree to part um but yeah but they also did a slew of nxt uh names uh i mean i'm i'm familiar with a lot of them Shug, you said you weren't that familiar but um i would read like things like oh this this guy is gonna be the best there's this one guy who um who's like kind of like the face of the LGBT Q uh, in, in pro wrestling for the last few years, he did a whole thing with Stephanie McMahon where it's like about inclusion, like in, in, within like the last year. And um, you would think that you know, at some early 20, he's like 24 years old, 23 years old, he's going to be the next thing. Uh, Jake Atlas, um, he's released. And again, you don't know if it's like they asked for it or if it's just like, behavior, like well, why did they do it? You know? So, Chuck, uh, there's a lot of talk of why it's happening why, why do you think it's happening well Bray Wyatt I, I don't know why because but you know I, I think when you're jobbing for Bill Goldberg um in the 21st century in the middle of what would be like the biggest push of your career you know the writing is is on the wall and you know it's like you say they build him up just to break him down and anytime and like also, as you said, he never really got like the huge wins or any win that he got was always completely um, muddied over like right after. Like he got the Universal Championship and then, like I said, he in one of them shows, I, don't, I can't remember if it was in um, Saudi Arabia or Australia, one of those shows. Um, he loses to Bill Goldberg, who was famous, most famous when we were in elementary school. Um, and then obviously over the years, he's lost a lot of big 
um, older names, not even guys that are like contemporaries of him. He's lost to Undertaker. He's lost to John Cena. He's lost to this person, our person. And it's, it's just been woeful. Um, and it's funny because I remember um, when it happened, Ronda Rousey came out and it was like that fans, WWE fans don't, appre- uh, don't appreciate shit or something like that. And it just goes to show you, like, she doesn't know shit about the wrestling business um, because that's the one person wrestling fans um, all over have been um, bemoaning about over the last 10 years, it seems, when he was repackaged as Bray Wyatt or when he debuted as as Bray Wyatt and then when he re-debuted as The Fiend. Um, it seemed like he had like very, very like he was he was going places and they were finally gonna really um utilize this like uber talented guy. Um and they just didn't and then they finally let him go. And you know, with all of these people getting released, you know, I I I, I don't think AEW could pick them all up, and I don't think impact wrestling is as big of a as big of a pond for them to, to swim in. I think I I wouldn't be surprised if a third major or mid-major promotion were to spring up over the next few years, just so that there's a place for all of these guys to shine because all of these, uh, there's a lot of people in these releases that really could be the faces of companies. So it's just astounding that WWE had them all and just didn't see value in them. But oh, we have back- yeah, you, you got your ideas as to why. So if we backtrack to 2018 when uh, the indie scene was huge, uh, or, you know, it was like, you know, Bullet Club shirts. What is that? Oh, I seen them. It was like the NWO was like people were wearing it and weren't even really wrestling fans. It was like a cool thing in like the, the subculture of like wrestling. So uh, there was rumors of this new promotion that was going to be formed. And, we you know, you're familiar with the whole uh, deal elite you know, they had the, they made the bet that they could uh, have their own indie show in a 10,000 seat arena and they did it. And mm-hmm. from that, it was, it was uh, all in and it turned into AEW. So in late 2018, um, WWE started giving out money. They started giving out contracts to everyone just so they wouldn't, it was like pay for pay or play, you know, like they would just kind of like put them in like a uh, freeze them and like they didn't do anything with them. Bray Wyatt was like, actually, you know, we, we saw him and everything, but the, it was always just like fumbled. Yeah. There's other guys that were just shelved. You never saw them again, or they changed their name or they changed their gimmick. And um, the magic that they were having with the fans, it was just like lost. Like they, they hit him away. It was kind of like as a way so AEW couldn't have them mm-hmm. to showcase them. And of course, they had the monkey wrench of the whole COVID thing to completely change things too. But, um, but that being said, now that, that they're releasing everyone uh, and like Vince McMahon is publicly because he doesn't just say something. Everything is very deliberate with him, you know. So he says, uh, if I can't use them, sure, uh, get, let them get money elsewhere. Like he's basically encouraging them to sign AEW. And he said, oh, I'm not afraid. I'm not. They're not competition to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you said another promotion springing up. I could actually see. I thought about this right now while you're talking about that. Um like AEW have their own version of NXT. So like they'll be as big, like roster size, but just like you'll go to one place for one 
uh, younger talent, and then you go to the to the kind of like the WWE castaways will be kind of like the Nitro, and then you would have like the other AEW, which is more of like the indie scene that they're still with the grassroots guys, and that's where you can see a lot of them um, uh, going off into AEW where they have their own like um, create creative control, which some people saying is a detriment, like where it's kind of getting. Did you, did you hear anything about the Max Caster? Okay, so he, he okay, so he he I only know him because on AEW he uh, he just started popping up and he does like a silly rap thing, and he said something offensive. He said two things offensive, and he, uh, he made something about uh, uh, people that we talked about in the last few weeks, uh, the Olympic uh, athletes. Like he was just like uh, calling them like quitters and stuff like that, and he made a lot of like uh, pushing the envelope jokes, and they basically uh, sided with all right, we're going to suspend them and. In WWE, they wouldn't have had that opportunity to explore their creative creative side. And um, so that's the thing with that, where it's like WWE writes everything for you. Uh, they, you know, you, you just follow what they say, the script. And the, uh, let's say Braun Strowman, like, can he survive in AEW? Because he, he would need like a whole like, all right, tell me what to do. And he wouldn't be able to go out there and just try to, like you see an MJF who goes out there like, Balls to the wall out there, and if he fails, he fails. And you know how the Max Caster failed. Um, you know he, he had the freedom to do it, and you know um, there was backlash to it. But that's the whole thing you have there now. You have the people that are leaving WWE. Can they survive in this other world that they've been uh, groomed in? You know, from like ex football players, you bring them into the system, and they completely control like you know everything you do, uh, how you talk, uh, how you work. Um, your gimmick, how you like your style, and and then they go, all right, you're you're released, and now you got to figure out how. Like, okay, so how do I get booked on an indie show? Well, they don't even know how to do that. So it's kind of it's like kind of like if out of nowhere, if I'm working at like a store, like, you know, like a company, and then I have to I have to go to like a, a mom and pop shop and try to like work a different style, and it might like fuck up your career. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I think it's also because we have the guy, Nick Khan, right? Nick Khan is uh, supposedly uh, looking at how to minimize the roster size and like the financial to maximize their like their uh, their annual growth. Because like, I remember like, remember in like early 2020, they said like, you know, they had the XFL, they quit, they stopped that. And WWE said, oh my God, like, are they going to go bankrupt now again? Like, and then they had like the best year they've ever had because like, they were able to just minimize everything they went off the road uh for obvious reasons but they made money by like cutting people and um but their their office size uh it was like 100 people working in like the stanford office now it's like 25 Mm -hmm. uh people that you would always see like on social media and stuff like that now it's like a couple of guys doing it that's why their presence isn't as well all over the place and AEW is doing it where it's like they probably have they're putting way so much, way money into it, you know. So, uh, is is are they are they preparing? Are WWE preparing for like another the arms race where they're gonna wait for AEW just to go bankrupt or just to call it quits because they're spending so much money without a return? That's what I can see in the long run. That's like a five year thing in my head. Yeah, but I think the both companies are like going back on the road again. Um, AEW, I think next year. They're moving 
from TNT to TBS, and I think they're changing nights. Yeah. Well, they're changing uh, networks on Wednesdays to TBS, and Fridays are going to be on TBS. And then they're going to have, like, annual, you know, like, uh, quarterly events on TNT. Okay. Like, like, like mini pay-per-views. Yeah, and then they'll so, have, they'll, yeah. So they'll be on the road, probably, you know, start having, like, video games. Um, oh, yeah. That's a big thing. Um, all of those things probably getting into probably figuring out who knows maybe you might start seeing AEW pay-per-views on like HBO Max or something Um, yeah. so they can maximize that they're going to have a streaming service one day soon Um, they're just like stocking up on footage Um, they should really work with their synergy with uh, Max you know like Warner and everything like that um yeah like even if they did like a 24 7 like the wwe does where they kind of like follow the wrestlers and yeah. you know tell their stories because you know AEW doesn't have um they only have like uh a minute amount of people who you'd say are like mainstream you know your chris jericho's and that's really <laughs> like about it like if, you, if you're not like a wrestling fan, you don't really know any of these other people. But you know, Bray Wyatt. Well, the the NXT um, firings is interesting because they didn't um, really consult Triple H or Shawn Michaels, who are basically like the head guys of NXT. Um, they already from what i've read um it is possible like they might just nix nxt as a whole that's that's the room i've heard and just have it be like two rosters like but on tv every day yeah like they said you know it was a major mistake um putting it on wednesday nights because they already admitted they lost that battle by moving it back to tuesdays and you know people are feeling like they they really should have just left it on the um on the network hmm. but, but then the net but then the network changed the peacock so so much stuff changed and like what yeah. what i what i thought was going to happen in two years ago like it's completely changing so it's not like um everything's set in stone still yeah and it might have been something with like universal because it um you know they they probably said all right you have your own deal with fox um so now you got to do something for us because we need um, more of your program, more of your programming to um, justify a TV contract. But the last thing I want to say about like the Wyatt family, I mean, about Bray, Bray Wyatt, um, it sucks, um, especially Brody Lee, God rest his soul. You know, he passed away and literally every member of the Wyatt family um got fired by or released by WWE over the last like four years. So who knows if he, if he would have lived, they probably would have been able to reconvene in AEW or some other setting. Um, obviously they wouldn't have the Wyatt name because you know, WWE does, but we've seen it like in impact. I've, I haven't seen it cause you know, I don't watch impact, but I've heard of them re establishing like the nwo under like a whole new name because wwe owns it uh so it's not out of the realm of possibility but it'd be interesting to see where bray wyatt 
um lines his feet because I think like my favorite wrestlers today are like Roman Reigns and then Bray Wyatt. And I was really disappointed in how they wrapped up like the storyline with him and Alexa Bliss because I thought it was gonna end up like I don't know where it was gonna go, but I I thought there was like, you know, better narrative endpoints than what we got, which was nothing basically. Yeah, there's no uh, long-term thinking. Yeah, it's just it's basically you know it's financial, um, you know. So it's kind of like we're gonna see more and more of this probably. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's funny because I was thinking about canceling um my my pe- my peacock um mm-hmm. subscription because I don't really watch it, and you know SummerSlam's coming up and um. What's that? Bobby Lashley and Goldberg for the thing. I have zero interest in that. Mm. But the one thing I do want to, I'd still watch is like the older programming, um, and Stone Cold's Broken School Sessions, because you know they, I, well, the ones mainly with you know the older guys. So for me, my my only appeal with WWE right now is things in the past. So they've still got that credit. <laughs> From and them. and that's that's what they were banking on years ago. They were like, "Oh, we're gonna have a network," and this is like the '80s. Oh, we're gonna have like an HBO network, and that's why we're gonna have, buy all these tapes. They started buying tapes in like uh, the '80s, like uh, Calgary Stampede. I mean, yeah. Um, and at this point, it's like the only reason that I was watching was for the network because I was like, "Hey, I want to watch like every ECW from like '97." Now it's like, um, I won't. Like, it's 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 not as it's, it's, I, it's, I don't, I don't want to think too much like where to find it and how to get it. It's like, it's not easy anymore. It's not user friendly and um, they're losing me. Um, and I, I don't even think they're really investing in newer fans, uh, like young, the, the next generation. It's kind of like, all right, like you said, having Bill Goldberg go over uh, Barry White. And it's like, who's that? You're trying to get the 45 year old guy who used to watch it when you like high school in the 80s. They don't care because they want to see Barry White, you know? So yeah. they don't know what they're doing. All right, Mike. Final thoughts. Final thoughts. Uh, episode 64, we just wrapped up our Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, our series. Um, I mean, I could have just read this, uh, you know, over a week by myself somewhere and go to the park. And But I was able to uh, discuss it with another uh, fan and uh, a smart fan, if you will. Like, we, I go in thinking one thing and then, like, you say something like, oh, yeah, you're right. Um so it really was a great experience and it re uh it reinvigorated my respect for Terrence Young because I for some reason I was falling out of love with like just like watching films and now I, I bought a bunch of like Blu-rays and but I'm going I'm going back to watch like grindhouse type movies and just like movies that he referenced even even old Hollywood type movies and just um not just for the story but for like like when I would watch TCM um Oh, that's you know uh, Errol Flynn, you know, like, and then like find out like his real life backstory is like, whoa, that's like stranger than fiction, you know. Um, so we we tapped we we capped it off. Uh, our book club went into August, but who knows what book the next one we'll read. Um, we'll, we'll we'll figure that out because that's always a fun uh, exercise, and I think everyone who listened to our marathons of it would appreciate it and give it a, another look too. Um, Val Kilmer, um, 
yeah, I always liked it. I always liked his movies. Um, I always heard the stories that he was difficult and everything, but this uh, documentary in particular, I, I suggest people go check it out um, if you have Amazon. Um, I appreciate artists and like, you know, like being self-reflective and that it came to be uh, very true with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well. So I think that was a nice little uh, time, you know, to like self-reflect too is always good. Even if you're not like a movie star or a famous director, uh, it's good to go back and just like, all right, so take stock. And uh, Val Kilmer, you know, we, he's, look, he's looking back now and it was, uh, it was really powerful. It could have just been the time I watched, but it was good. It was a good time. To, it was a good moment for me to watch it. Um, with pro wrestling, including the Bray Wyatt release and all the other releases, um, we already saw a bunch of people pop up on AEW that they said would show up, and then people would be like, "No, there's no way." Hey, what's up? Um, you know, Mal uh, Alistair Black, Malachi Black. He's already being pushed. The rumors of CM Punk and Daniel Bryan coming to AEW. Uh, maybe Bray Wyatt as a, a new name. Maybe me and Chuck, we're going to AEW. We're going to a few in September. We mm -hmm. revealed that we're going to be in Chicago. Yeah. We're doing a bunch of things in Chicago. But who knows? Because AEW is fan friendly. They're cheap tickets and great seats because they, they're always in small arenas at this point still. It's like 5,000 seat arenas. So who knows what we'll see. Uh, but we had a great time when we saw Stone Cold and all that in WWE a couple years ago. Finally, we get to go out and do something because it's been a long time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Them really, those releases suck. I, I really was like pissed off when um Bray Wyatt got fired. Literally, when I was doing my notes, the first note was it sucks. Mm. Um. So I'm hoping he 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 lands somewhere on his feet or oh, by someplace where he's greatly utilized. Um. Who knows? Maybe he'll be IRS. <laughs> on AEW, him and him and um, him and Bo Dallas. If he decides to come back into wrestling, there'll be like some ta tax collecting um gimmick. It'd be uh Bitcoin guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Doge. Doge boys. Yeah. Uh, Val Kilmer. Um, you know, I I'm aware of his his person, as they say. I, I have movies of his that i enjoy watching mainly you know batman forever and ghost in the darkness um heat whenever it's on but as i say he's not like you know the the main star of heat but he's featured heavily in it um uh once upon a time in hollywood what a journey we got to uh, this first time i read like a book in quite a long like a whole entire book in quite a long time, a narrative book. And as you've seen, I got all these other books. I started reading another book. Um, I didn't even get through the um, prologue yet. So, cause it's, it's really um, insightful book about like the history of black comedy. Um, but please check out our YouTube channel because as I'm recording this right after I'm done, I'm getting ready to upload my review of the coda of the Godfather or the Godfather coda. Forgot what it's called. The death of Michael Corleone, which is basically a recut of the Godfather part three. Um, 
you know, if you've been following story time way back when I did a story time, like about a half an hour, where I just went off on the Godfather part three, because I feel like it's an insult to the series. Um, so it's a little, you know, seven minute video where I just go off a little bit. And we got more and more stuff that's we're getting ready to, to come out um pretty soon. Um, we got all our bear reviews. I'm seeing a lot of um people checking those out as they come out. So that's really like encouraging. Um, because you know, I'm I'm getting drunk for your 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 um for your entertainment. I <laughs> try to talk very, very um Quentin Tarantino-esque about alcohol by volumes and um the hops. So yeah, just keep supporting our stuff. Like we're gonna keep doing our doing our thing. Um sooner or later you're gonna see us, you know, rocking some new apparel. Uh yeah, and the Chicago thing, like I'm really excited um to to branch out because I think we're very, very New York centric and um according to Mike, we're probably gonna be interacting with a lot of people from all over the country, maybe even the world. So they're going to be joining you all in the audience as, you know, part of the Shug Me The Mooney family. So we're really, really excited about that. And with that, this has been episode 64 of Shug Me The Mooney. Shug Me The Mooney. <laughs>